0: Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on social media at Galen Trombley. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: Great
2: tables. Please hold for a very important message. Light speed sequence initiated. How oh, may I help you? Bonjour. Security breach. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> awesome. It's a miracle. Save Three,
1: two, one. Mission complete. Thank you. Have a nice day.
0: Welcome, everybody. This is episode, I should be looking at the front of my paper here, Um, 229 of the Galen and Trombley show. My guest today, um, Dr. Aaron Stewart, Um, just to make sure I have the right title here, um, because you said you were, your kids call you what?
1: They they call me the the doctor of feelings.
0: Doctor of feelings.
1: Uh-huh. We'll
0: go with that. But you're also uh, chief of psychology at CVPH. Yes. Is that the formal title?
1: It is now. Okay. Mm-hmm. So
0: um, welcome, and I haven't just Thanks. spoken with you off air for a few minutes. I'm excited. I think this will be a good time. So, for people that don't know you, how did you get over here from Vermont?
1: Mm. That's a good question. I don't I don't really know. I mean I know. So. Um, I came back to Vermont after being gone for a, a while, traveling around the country and working and getting different types of experience. I wanted to be a prison psychologist. And I I left Vermont because I didn't think there was enough crime and aggression and violence in prisons to learn what I wanted to learn. And so I, I went through graduate school, studied a lot, um, a, A niche in psychology called forensic psychology, which is the intersection between law and mental health. And so forensic psychologists work in all of those different places, court and prison and doing assessments about risk and threat and treating aggression and violence. And so that's what I wanted to do. And I thought I wanted to work in prisons and jails. And then I I tried that. And it went okay. But it, it it didn't go great, I would say, for me in that it was an environment that was really hard for me to function in. I'm very sensitive, and people might not know that because I don't, I don't tell people that, so don't tell anybody that. But <laughs> just between I'm, you and I. Yeah, yeah. just between <laughs> you and I. I'm very soft on the inside, and so I was working in really hard environments, very hard by structure, hard by by the way they train their people. And so I got a lot of experience. I learned a lot of things that I don't think a lot of people know about mental health and who gets labeled and who doesn't and prison and whether that works and to do what society wants it to do. And, but then I sort of started to fall apart internally because of the pressure and accountability and lack of resources and the pain and the, all that stuff. And so I found this job in Vermont posted. I was living in LA. Um, and I found this job in Vermont, which was to repurpose their juvenile justice facility, the only juvenile justice facility in the state to a treatment facility, a rehabilitation center. And they needed a clinical psychologist. Um, or I have a PhD in counseling psychology, but I practiced most of my career as a clinical psychologist, and they needed somebody to repurpose the facility to a treatment facility. And I saw that, that posting, and I was like, that's, that's my job. And so I called the number, and this woman answered the phone, and I said, you know, you don't, you don't know me. I'm going to submit my application for the clinical director position. And I just want to let you know I'm coming to get the job. It's my job. And she was like, I've known her now for a long time, and we we like to joke about this story because she's a longtime state employee. And I remember she said to me, she was like, I don't know who you think you are, but there is a process, and you will be interviewed, and you will be judged. And if you get the job then i will meet you and i said all right you know thanks for letting me know um i'm coming to get the job so i'll see you then i knew it was i knew it was the right job for me i knew i could do it i knew i wanted to do it so i had that job for like almost 5 years january to january of 2014 i came back to vermont took that job and then i left in may of 2019. And um, it had been a year of me thinking about leaving that job, and I was supervising the psychiatrists on contract at that facility, and I met this psychiatrist um, who was really special. I've worked with a lot of psychiatrists over my career, and some of them um, I can't connect with. They prescribe a lot of medicine. They focus on you know psychotropics and psychiatric uh, medicine and I can't connect with that. And so this psychiatrist was different. And he um, then got promoted and left Woodside, the juvenile facility, um, and came over and managed the Department of Psychiatry at CVPH. And I knew I knew by watching his practice that somebody was going to scoop him up and he was a special, special child and adolescent psychiatrist. And so when I started to differ with the way that this juvenile justice center was being run, I did what I've done in my career, which is I started talking about my worries and my concerns about the way it was being run, and started talking about um, me not being able to practice the way that I wanted to practice at this facility under those ways of of it being run, and I gave it about a year, and then I left. I I called this the psychiatrist who was running the Department of Psychiatry at CVPH, and I said, I, I need to leave. Do you have anything at CVPH at, at, in Plattsburgh? And he was like, well, the hospital has never had a psychologist. Maybe if you write a job description for yourself, maybe you could come over and do some of the things I saw you do at this other facility He was like, you might be able to change the culture Um, because that sort of became what I was obsessed with in forensic psychology is, is working with populations that are both court or law associated and also have mental health histories. But the systems that they end up in need to be changed. And so my obsession became culture change around this population of people that are are law and mental health associated. And so when he said maybe you could change the culture at CBPH, I was like, yes, I'm in. That also sounds like my next step. So that was May of 2019, and I've been there ever since. And somewhere along the way he got promoted again, which I knew was going to happen, to the network leader for psychiatry, which is, you know, over all of these different hospitals, all of the psychiatric patients, and he's the leader above all of the psychiatrists and units. And so when he left CVPH, he asked all of the medical doctors whether somebody would become his position, which was the medical director above the department. And all of them said no. And CVPH had never had a psychologist become a medical director. And so he appointed me, and I took it, and I did it for about a year. So I did the chief of psychology position and also the uh, chief of psychiatry, which was then the assistant medical director position. And I gave it back, the appointment, in last November. And so I'm just the original position that I came to CVPH for, which is the chief of psychology. I just run the psychology department. but um, and now there's a new medical director for the department of psychiatry, but... What I really do at CVPH is um, I built a critical incident stress management team which responds to all employees in crisis after they have a, a critical incident at work. And so I run that team. We respond to all of the types of critical incidents that the employees go through. And that was incredibly rewarding during the pandemic because the employees were struggling hard um, during COVID at the hospital. And I also um, respond to all of the patients that are aggressive and violent and in really serious crisis. And so that's really my niche, which is people that, and now it's employees and patients here at the hospital, but People that are in extreme amounts of mental health crisis are um, the people that I want to work with, the people that I do work with, the people that I'm good at working with. And so that's what I do. And on the side, I'm the co-chair of the Vermont State Human Trafficking Task Force. So I have a specialty in sexual exploitation and sex trafficking. And so I... Help to run all of the initiatives for the state of Vermont on um, sex trafficking, mostly for minors, youth and youth and adolescents. And then I have a, I have a small company that I run, um, and I've been running since 2011, which is focused on delivering resiliency mindset and mentality to individuals, families, and organizations that need to improve their performance and productivity, and for a family that really looks different than an organization, for an individual that really looks different than a family. But I, I specialize, that company specializes in um, teaching people how to use their internal skill set and their environmental um, strategies and coping skills to meet their next adversity, to meet their next challenge. And that has become the thing that I love the most professionally is teaching people preventatively on the front end how not to be in mental health crisis because of challenges. And so I travel some talking about resiliency mindset, and it's a joy. It's the greatest professional pleasure um, I've had, and I'm really grateful the opportunity, and as a side note, I try to apply those strategies to my life, but as it turns out, it is very hard to do some of those resiliency strategies in my life when I'm going through adversity, and so I have to work really hard to to do that, just like everybody else has to work really hard to do it. Um, so yeah, so that's what I do for work. <laughs>
0: That's good. That's good. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, th- I have a lot of follow up questions and a lot to kind of you know peel back there. But can you talk about cause, you know? And I want to give people kind of the full, you know, full view of you. So you talk about the work, and I know you obviously had some, like you said, some some personal, whether it be struggles or adversity or things you had to overcome. So throwing in that. Just to give us kind of like who you are, maybe outside of the walls of work, and then kind of tie it all back in together to make the complete errand.
1: Yeah, so when I was coming up, I was raised on a a small farm in the mountains of Vermont. very rural. My mom still runs that same farm, Um, and I can remember, I think my dad said it, but I think he meant it more than he probably said it because my mom probably told him to stop saying that he had wanted to have boys, not girls. And I think at some point he stopped saying it because he just started treating us like um, farmhands yeah. <laughs> in the best possible way, which was, you know, my my dad was a logger and a farmer and he had these two girls, me and my sister, And we were just not that great at manual labor and for a lot of reasons, I think. But he worked, us two and my mom, extremely hard and set that precedence for us. He worked all of the time, a lot of the time. I can remember being a little girl and my mom saying to him that he had to. He was required to sit on the couch and watch Sunday football because he just chose to work when he had a choice and he created this culture in our household where work ethic was the most important thing and it's what mattered to him and he that's how that's the way that he raised uh, myself and my sister And the two of us are extremely hard workers. And we have found different niches and different paths, but most of that because of education and and experience in a professional environment. But work ethic is something that I think um, is woven through everything that I do and everything that my sister does, everything that my mom does. And it was handed down to us by him. And he got sick um, when I was a young person with cancer, and he kept working. And so he got this rare, rare form of cancer, and I was a kid, so, like, my memory is weird about all the th- the things that happened during his illness. But I used to go with him for his experimental treatments to Boston, and I want to call it. I want to say it was photosynthesis, but it wasn't photosynthesis because that's what happens with plants. But it was photo something where they take all your blood out and put it through this tube system, zap it, and put it back in. And it's happening. You know, that's your treatment. And it used to happen every three weeks, and we would be down there for a couple days. And he always took me, um, as I remember, and. He took me, I think, because I was very quiet um, and not problematic as a <laughs> child. <laughs> my sister, I feel like I remember. Are
0: you, are you oldest or youngest? She's
1: one year older than I am. Okay. And she was always kind of mouthy and talkative and extroverted. And um, my mom is also kind of mouthy and talkative and extroverted. and And so it was always me. That my dad was really quiet, uh, stoic, um, and non not really emotionally expressive. But um, so it was just the two of us always being quiet together for these long stretches. We would drive down to Boston. All of these things would happen to his blood. They would put the blood back in. We'd drive back from Boston. And it would be like days of stretches of just quiet. and us not really saying it was just the two of you Yeah, and he would would get me out of bed before the sun would be up and put me in the car and we would drive down there we'd do all these things we'd come back and that was sort of a pattern that happened over and over and over and occasionally I can remember him taking my mom and him coming back and saying that that was the last time that he was going to take me Um, and I spent a lot of time with him in the logging truck and so we had a connection that was very quiet and i watched and watched and watched him work in a lot of pain and through chemo treatments and you know he attached his chemo bag to his body and climbed up and down the logging truck and i knew that he was tired um and so i'll just say i don't know how that translated to me um, but I have consistently chosen people in my personal life that uh, I feel like I have to help. And I don't know if that's because I'm a psychologist or if I I just don't feel comfortable with being with with somebody that's my equal or what it is, but all of my romantic relationships have always been with somebody that I end up feeling like I have to take care of them. And, um, and that has put me in a, in a lot of situations that are uh, stressful in my personal life and unfulfilling. And so I'm right now in the middle of trying to get a divorce, which has been going on for a really long time. It's very contested. It's very contentious. It is never-ending effort and work, and more to come on that. When it's done and over with, I will be able to talk more freely about it. But it has been, um, we have two kids. They are uh, the lights of my life. Um, I thought that my career was going to be my biggest accomplishment, I always, you know, thought that as my dad set the precedence that work ethic was the most important thing and that you need to change the world by working hard on it and that that's what makes you worthy. You have to leave the world a better place. And being a mother has taught me that work ethic and changing the world professionally is important, but that what is more important is loving your children and your family and the friends the best way that you can. Like both of those things are really important is having love and belonging in your personal life and also having, you know, achievement and love and belonging and community in your professional life. And so I've had to really work at that. Like I've had to really work at not making choices to be close to people I have to serve in my personal life and also finding friends at work and choosing friends that I don't have to serve at work and at home. So now I have this like incredible group of girlfriends, which I've never really had. I had one best friend Mm -hmm. and we've been best friends for a really long time. But I never trusted myself to get close to anybody else personally because I always chose people that needed something from me or that I had to work for or serve and wanted to take from me. And so now I have this group of girlfriends that is amazing. I call them. I see them. We drink wine together. We drink coffee together. I text them. They call me and... I show up for them, and in the best possible way. And it is so deeply meaningful and fulfilling for me to be connected and feel like I'm a part of a community. But my kids are actually the very best part of life for me. And I take it really seriously now. Like I leave work early to go hang out with them. And I try to be at all their things. And I try to, like, think about my work sometimes as a means to an end where I'm providing for their livelihood and their pleasure and their joy um, so that I feel comfortable spending, you know, money. Um, And I do feel comfortable spending money on them. And so, like, I guess I would just say I used to be just a psychologist wanting to find a family to have kids and now I am a mom that also goes to work during the day and mostly I spend my days thinking about when I get to leave to go hang out with the kids and when I get to hang out with my friends when I get to be out in nature And trying to get as much done during the day to help other people as possible. Like, I come with a lot of energy, come with a lot of ethics and values at working hard. But I've reeled myself in over the last couple years to really think about, like, what is most important and most meaningful to me? And so it's been a long journey that's really, really hard trying to get a, a divorce Um, and there will be an end to it, but it has used a lot of my resiliency strategies. I've had to cope a lot and try to stay standing up and re-stand up and rise up and all of those things. And it's taken a lot of the, ironically, it's taken a lot of the strategies that I have been talking to people about for a really long time. And that is both ironic and annoying. Um, all at the same time, but, and amazing. It's, it's, you know, I've been training for this for, I guess I've been training for for my whole career is trying to get out of something that is very, very hard. And, um, so yeah, so that's, and, and the kids, the kids are, uh, I've always loved everybody else's kids. Like I've always treated the hardest kids. That's been my niche is like, the baddest kids the mouthiest kids the kids in the most amount of trouble those are my 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 kids my specialty and now i have my own and i'm trying to make them you know behave and do the right thing um but it's hard work really hard work and so fun
0: how uh, how old are you kids
1: they're six and five. The five year old just turned five in, in February, and the six year old is about to be seven this summer. And um, two, two boys uh, right now. And I don't know what the future holds for any of us. Like, I can't see how this whole thing is going to go. Um, but I'll tell you what hanging out with them. And seeing, like, some of my mannerisms and seeing some of their dad's mannerisms, like, I can see that they were created, but also that they are recreating themselves every single day. Like, they are driving their truck, and I'm just sometimes along for the ride. Like, sometimes I'm like, what is happening with their uniqueness And their individuality. They're different. They're very, very different. Close together. And they came into the world really differently. Like, they have very different birth stories. And I don't know what that, how that shaped them. They, they don't look, uh, I mean, white people, they're half black, half white. White people always tell me that they look exactly alike. And I'm always like, I don't, they don't, they don't really look alike. But... (laughs) But but I get what you're saying in a really white state like in Vermont. I get what you're saying, but um yeah, they're really they're really special. I think all moms and dads say that. Like I think that's a thing that's that you just say like your kids are are really great.
0: About your own kids, about other kids.
1: Well, I think most people say it about their own kids and not as much about other people's kids, but I I can find the greatness in any kid, and that has been a superpower for me because people want me to do something with their children to help them and shape them and change them and help themselves shape, shape themselves and change themselves. And a lot of the kids that people have asked me to work with are kids that people have labeled as unlikable or unreachable or untreatable they're on the farthest end of the train you know that has gone off the tracks and um I can sit with kids and I just love them I love their uniqueness and their sense of humor and their bad mouths and um their desire to break rules I need to help them change that because it doesn't it doesn't work for a lot of the kids that are already in trouble, but um, but I feel a lot of love for children and adolescents that are on the fringe, um, and mine as well. That are not. I don't think they're on the fringe, although I don't know because I'm biased. Like I can't tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of hope for the for the kids of the the kids changing our future.
0: So when you um, so you've been doing this for.
1: Long time.
0: Yeah, long time. And if you...
1: I got my PhD in 2007 and have been practicing and working ever since.
0: And so your oldest was what, 2016?
1: 2016. Okay. So, mm-hmm.
0: and then um, then your, your youngest son would have been 2018, early 18? 2018. Yeah. Yep. My, uh, my oldest is December of 17, so he's very close to your youngest. But um, do you find... Could you talk about you know you go into you know psychology and you start you know at a young age and you're doing this and you've been doing it for a long time but then you start throwing in because like so like I'm in real estate when I was first in real estate for the first couple years I was 20 when I started I looked like I was 15 and I'm always like well me too and yeah and you just look young Mm -hmm. and also the other thing is you know someone's making a big investment with money and everything else. And they're like, okay, 20-year-old kid who still lives with their parents and is still in college. Like, tell me how to buy a house. And now I kind of laugh because it's like I can see the – and even back then, I didn't have the confidence as a 20-year-old because I was like, I'm young. I don't deserve to be here. Like, I worked worked hard and and I've really done a lot of self-teaching and growing and and seeking out mentors and stuff to get to the point where I am now. But – I'm way more confident now, having gone through hundreds and hundreds of transactions, I bought and sold my own properties. like, So I understand that. Do you find that's the same as you when you roll in, you're brand new, to then you start dealing with some personal stuff that you said, I can use my own techniques or I'm using on clients, on uh, myself, and now you have your own children where that gives you a complete 360 view of a couple children in your life versus, hey, I'm going to see the, you know, whether it's a you know, a young client, but you see them, you know, here and there for sessions or wherever. But now it's like these two boys are in your life all the time and you know everything about them, the good, the bad. And um, when you talk about seeing the good in kids, my three kids, I can totally see the good in all my kids. I can totally see the bad in all my kids, meaning we're very biased where I think anybody could say this. If they see a kid acting out, it's very quick to label that kid as like, well, they're not a nice kid, or they're mean, or well, they weren't nice to my kid, and I've seen my own kids act out where I'm like, "Oh, we don't, do, no, you don't do that, you don't do that." But then I've also seen them be super sweet and like the nicest creatures on earth. But there's a I, I get to see both sides, and naturally, like your parental instinct is to love that child and like unconditionally, whether good or bad. And I find that that can blur parents, but I also think you got to recognize like nobody's perfect and I have I, I always self reflect on my own self I have a ton of flaws that I'm always trying to work on and I can I recognize I can step back from like the dad like loving my children to step back and say okay this is something they're not great at but I also realize they're young and I, I don't I try to be um, I try to be a voice of reason but I also try to let them do their thing and figure it out before I step in and luckily my wife's the same way. We're not very overbearing. We're not helicopter parents. Like my kids will do stuff and I'm like, they could get hurt here, but let's <laughs> just see how this goes. And and I, I had a read something recently and it's a, a guy that I follow, um, you know, with, with other stuff and he's an author and things. And he's come out with a lot of stuff around like, f- you know, fatherhood and stuff. It's really just geared at parents, but he packages it as, as for dads. But the whole idea of like, you know, really allowing your kid to, you work with your child, but you don't necessarily, you know, they're their own, like you said, they're their own human. They got to figure out their own way. So, you know, we're there, you know, we obviously don't want them to put themselves in like major harm or do something that's, you know, you know, super dangerous. We're, we're there, but we're also, you know, you have to let them experiment stuff. And he, you know, he said, if they can do it, don't do something they can do. So if they, like my kids now are like opening up you know, whether it's like a chip bag or something, but let them do it and struggle. And then if all of a sudden they feel they they finally feel that sensation of the bag ripping apart, which we take for granted, but as a three, four, five year old doing it for the first time, like, oh my God, I, I, I opened the bag. And that's a big, that's a big thing for a kid, mm-hmm. but you got to have them let them have that moment versus just, oh, hey, let me do that for you. So there are certain things I've learned as a parent that I really like to, and I'm the same way I see my kids act mannerisms myself, my my wife and then i also see mannerisms in myself from my parents vice versa where i'm like oh my god i'm doing that like <laughs> i know my parents did that 20 30 years ago mm-hmm. but um but really when you're trying to i think from a parenting standpoint i'm trying to be definitely a parent where i I'm, I'm definitely you know i reprimand them and i do stuff but i also want to make sure that i'm not squashing their development and i'm not being overbearing where they don't have the freedom to go explore and do stuff. And I, you know, there's times where, you know, you're always watching your kids. You always kind of have an eye on them, but let them go do their thing. Let them get dirty. Let them go like, you know, do some crazy stuff and just, you know, and they'll, you know, the tears start coming and they're fighting. And then, you know, you kind of let it see where it escalates and then you step in, but you kind of, you know, I try to see if they can problem solve and just life skills that I think they have to experience without jumping on them quickly. Um, so, that full circle tangent on my part was, do you find that you are better equipped with a lot of stuff now that you've experienced motherhood? You've experienced, like I said, some maybe some personal struggles and you've experienced obviously the professional, just ex- you know years of professional development through client work. Are you like a more well-rounded full person now or do you find that maybe that's changed or skewed what you've done?
1: So real talk, I came into the profession cause I was broken. I was broken from all, so many things that happened in my family of origin and I, I, I wanted to figure out what had happened to me and to fix myself. And also I knew that I had a special knack for calming people and soothing people and de-escalating them. So both of those things were true, that I had this thing. I can remember when I was like 16, a friend of mine called me and said, on the phone, the, like, the landline phone that had a cord, called me and said, I just found my mom and she took a bunch of pills. And I can remember her thinking, like, what, what do I do? I think I can do this. And the, I had this thing where I could tolerate terrible emotional situations and emotional pain. And also I didn't really like myself that much and I couldn't figure out what to do about that. I had so many flaws and I, I felt like I should be so much better. And so this is what happens in, in psychologist school, which is like graduate school, is that everybody sits around and tries to figure out what's wrong with themselves and apply all of their new learning to themselves and their mothers and their brothers and all the things. You have to go to group therapy with each other, with your cohort, you get to know each other like, and, I had some real moments in graduate school where I realized, like, I might actually be okay, and I need to work on myself. Like, I need to actually do work. And I did a lot of work. Not enough, because I've gotten myself into situations recently that are clearly because I didn't do enough work yet to avoid them. But I've done that work over the last few years. And the weirdest thing has happened from this incredible hardship that I've just gone through over the last couple of years, which I've been telling people for years and I didn't really understand it and I didn't really really know what I meant, which is that we can become even stronger from going through terrible challenges skillfully and developing even more self-esteem and more um, self-worth, we can rise to meet adversities and become and develop ourselves and grow ourselves from those adversities and those challenges. So we can have post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress with a resiliency mentality and mindset. and. I never understood that. I said it because I know what the research says and I know what the data says, but now I understand that I actually feel better about who I am from going through this really hard adversity recently and doing it in the name of of trying to be a good mom throughout it. Like, Protecting them from this experience has been the hardest part about it. And I did it because I can do it if I try hard and put a lot of effort in, is to protect them from this terribleness. they, They saw some of it and will continue to see some of it. But for the most part, making good choices by centering them and putting them first, the kids... I realized I am actually that brave and courageous and strong. And again, more to come about how I have been courageous and brave and strong, but I realized I am this person that I always wanted to be, which is I am, you know, a good psychologist and have a really strong work ethic and do the right thing as a neighbor and am a good mom. And There's been such complexity for me as a white mom of two brown kids in a really white neighborhood and white city and white state, which is that I do want them to meet hardship and to figure out how to navigate it. And I do want to coach and mentor them through it. But I'm also aware of how challenging the world actually is. And that has been hard for me to figure out how to parent without micromanaging and without helicoptering and also deal with my own feelings about what I know is out there. Like, during the day, I'm treating teenagers and adolescents that are experimenting with prescription medicines, opiates, meth, molly, you know, all of these things. And I'm going home to these two incredibly beautiful young faces that I can, I know that they're going to be approached. I know they're going to be bothered. I know they're going to be, you know, bullied and and all of these things that happen to kids. And so I'm trying to figure out like, and I'm treating teenagers and adolescents all day that are, you know, trying to hurt themselves and self-injurious and suicidality and all of these things that have been a part of my career for a really long time, treating the most violent, treating the most suicidal because that's what I do. And then going home to these kids and thinking about like, I know I can't protect them from all of these things in the world. I know I came up and had a lot of hardship and adversity and probably didn't handle it very well. Um... And have still so much learning to do. And, you know, I can't, I just have to accommodate for my feelings about them being in a risky world without placing them on them. Like, for example, I'll give you an example. I am extremely frightened of ticks. I don't really know why. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. I would classify it as my own phobia, my only phobia. It's a thing for me is I'm afraid the kids are going to get ticks and get Lyme disease and end up in this incubation chamber, which I heard a story about when I was, like, much younger about a guy who got Lyme disease and had to live in a tube in Germany. You know, I don't know what any of that means, but it got stuck. And this is the thing about traumas and phobias is we never know which one's gonna get stuck for which person like it doesn't make any sense that I am scared of ticks I grew up in the woods I run around the woods all the time I've never had a tick I well actually I've had a tick but it wasn't on me for very long and I worry about that and I I similarly to, you know, trying not to scare them about drugs and substances and mental illness, which is my niche. I try not to scare them about ticks. And I just find this conversation as parents fascinating is how do you manage your own feelings about the things that you're going through either professionally or personally and not put them on your kids. And it's hard work. And I feel like it's the trick, the ticket, is having adults that you can share with. And for a long time, I didn't know what that was like because I was in a marriage where I wasn't able to share my feelings. And so now I know, like, what it's like to have people in my life where I can share my feelings. Oh, um, So, like, if I see a tick or when it becomes tick season – I find my friends who are moms and I'm like, listen, I know you don't wanna hear this again from me this year, but I'm scared of ticks, right? So like, I I just think it's about accommodating for our own humanity and our own like desire to do the right thing by our children, but also knowing like they're going to run into hardship and our job is not to make them avoid falling, it's to help them figure out how to pick themselves up and dust themselves off. It's not about how to avoid them not getting ticks, but what to do when you do get a tick. and Or what to do when somebody offers you, you know, medicines that will, quote, make you feel good. Like, we got to teach them what to do about hardship and adversity rather than have them avoid it. And I try to do the same thing for myself now, giving myself grace and compassion that, like, I get myself into situations that are hard and challenging, and I need to figure out how to take care of myself through that and love myself through it. Same with my friends. Um, there was a, last year, a year before, there was a a, a drowning, um, a kid with a drowning at the hospital, and I was running the critical incident stress management team, so I showed up to take care of all of the employees, which meant that I heard the story probably 50 times in the first couple hours because I heard it from every EMT. I heard it from every firefighter. I heard it from every nurse. I, heard, I just heard this story over and over and over while they were working on the, the family. And um, I was intercepting all of the employees, trying to take care of them, make sure it didn't get stuck for them because you never know which one is going to get stuck. And mm. this one got stuck for me. And I started to be really worried that my kids were going to, you know, not that something was going to bad was going to happen to them in the in the water in the bathtub or the lake or and we live right next to the lake so we go swimming a lot during the summer. And it was getting stuck for me. I was starting to have nightmares. I was starting to worry about them. I bought them like way too many life jackets. I did all of the things. And then I realized I needed to start talking about it with people. And so I started talking about it with my entire team, the team that I run, the team that I coordinate, the team that I trained how to respond back to employees that are struggling. I was like, you guys, I'm messed up over this. Like, I have a problem. This one got stuck for me. What can I do? And... I heard a lot of different suggestions and I landed on enrolling myself in an EMT course. And so I enrolled myself in the community college here. Mm-hmm. Went to the EMT course twice a week, 4 hours a night and you know, kind of embedded myself in the EMT culture of the North Country for 6 months. And it Got it unstuck. I don't have nightmares anymore. I don't worry about them drowning. Um, I learned what you do when you see somebody who is struggling um, from, you know, being in the water and not being able to breathe, and it it reminded me that like as parents and as people raising the next generation, we have to take care of ourselves and also. We have to understand that they're going to go through things that we're not prepared for. We're going to have kids that are uniquely different than what we thought we were going to have. They're going to say and do things that we wish they wouldn't, and they're going to bump up against obstacles, and they're going to come undone and fall apart. And our job is to help them navigate it skillfully with creative and adaptive solutions and try to figure out who they really want to be in hardship and challenge. So you you bring up an interesting point, which is, like, how do you be a psychologist who specializes in avoiding mental health crisis and, avo- and, and parent these two new humans which you created and they came out of you without trying to make them avoid all of the hardship of life while also knowing all of the hardship of life because I see all of the things? And I would just say, like, it is the most miraculous experience of my life to watch them meet the demand of living as their own unique humans. And I'm really grateful. I'm really thankful. Being a mom is is hard work, but being a psychologist mom is really hard work. And I mean, sometimes I feel like I know exactly what to do when they're behaviorally acting out because, like, I've been training for that for for forever. But sometimes I don't know what to do with, like, all the big feelings of humans going to school and coming home and saying, like, this person was mean to me. And I think, you know what? I don't know how to do this. What am I doing? I don't know how to do this. But I think the ticket is for me, the ticket is having people in my life that can see me and hear me about all my worries and concerns about doing a good job and, and, you know, and trying to help them be the next generation. Um, it's a really complicated balance between like the day life of me, which is the highest end of severity and acuity in the mental health field and the nighttime and weekend life, which is, you know, trying to be a good community member, neighbor, friend, mom, daughter, sister, all of these things that are all facets of of who I am. And it's funny because, like, people think I must like talking to people. But the truth is, I'm super introverted. Like if I could choose, this is not true because I chose to be a psychologist, but I sometimes feel like if I could choose, I would choose people to be around just like my dad who don't really talk and I could sit there silently and we could all sit silently and just think about our own thoughts and be mostly alone. Um, But I do like talking to big crowds, which has been funny because I love a big crowd. I love talking about the hardest topics in front of a huge audience. I just don't think I'm that good with, like, one to one interactions or, you know, people connections in my personal life, but I'm getting better and better at it, and it's very deep and meaningful. Um, but I vet my friends hard. like they would tell you that I like, run them through the gamut of like tests to make sure they're kind and trustworthy and good with vulnerability and all of these things because it's so hard for me to open up like deep with somebody Um, because I'm used to being the person that listens to everybody else open up. But yeah, I do like big crowds. Not being in big crowds. I really don't like that. I don't like being in big crowds, but I like talking to big crowds. And I've had more and more opportunity to like give keynotes and speeches and um, big talks. And I really like that very much.
0: Um, well, I find like if you speak in front of a big crowd, it's less personal because it, everybody's it's not, out there. So it's like yeah. you're just speaking out. It's almost like you see everybody, but
1: I see a bunch of circles that are floating. Yeah. Like yeah. if you're
0: talking to me or we're having a one to one, I'm like, okay, I'm talking to Aaron, She's three, four feet away from me, and yeah. there's nothing really else to distract me. When you're in a big crowd, you're you're hearing your words, but you're not making individual connections with people. No. So it's really like you kind of lose the – like I've spoken in front of – probably not as big of crowds as you, but I've spoken in front of enough people. Like I have to do – actually tonight I have like a seminar thing to do, and there might be not a ton of people, but enough people that I'm not like individually looking at every single person. Right. And to me, I have no problem doing that because I'm just like talking. Yeah. Or like, okay, now you're going to sit in front of three people and I have a little bit of a connection. I don't mind doing it, but it's a different. It's different. Yeah. It's a different style.
1: Um, I, I, I feel like I come alive in a weird, extroverted, like shocking way when I walk into a room and there's a bunch of people there and I get to like pour my soul and heart all over them and don't have to take accountability for it because I don't really know any of them very well. And there's like a deep connectiveness in that. But I always, as a young person, struggled with like closeness and connection and belonging. And I think part of it, honestly, Galen, was that like I never felt that smart. And that made it so... I never felt like I had very much to add to a a conversation. I think part of that was like my sister was extremely bright, book smart. And she came up a year ahead of me in a tiny little school. And so every time I walked in a classroom, she had had that teacher the year before. And they watched me perform for the first, you know, I don't know what, week, two weeks. And then they were like, whoa, whoa we expected much more and there was a varying way that they came across with that phrase but it got really bad in math class because i'm not that good with numbers and i don't understand numbers i don't really understand math i see the world in pictures like and in feelings pictures and feelings i see like images big picture like large program build implementation that's what i can see cultural change and so numbers mean very little to me and they don't i don't remember them i don't i didn't understand algebra so like i would walk into the classroom and eventually start trying to distract everybody and become kind of a problem child in you know math classes and without fail the teacher in this small little school would say something like pull me aside and say something like you know we just didn't really expect you after your sister last year <laughs> and so also my sister was writing like crazy and reading like crazy and and I shouldn't say that she was writing profusely and reading you know extraordinarily and so my mom would say things to me like i would try to write or read and she would say things to me like you know your punctuation is just not that good and you don't spell that well I have to do all of these edits on your paper she didn't think I was going to get in college. into college my mom and she also thought like I guess I came out and my my head was 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 small and the doctor said something about how my head was small and my mom's been worried about me being smart ever since and so there was this narrative that I just wasn't that bright. And it's funny now because I write really well and read really well and still can't do math for anything. In fact, I almost didn't get my MBA. I finished my MBA in in August of of 2020, but it it took me seven years to finish my master's in business because of the accounting classes and the statistics classes and I kept needing extra help and so when I was 40 I went back to I went to a psychological clinic and I told them I want you to test me I think I have a math disability and the insurance company of course gave me a really hard time they wouldn't reimburse it because I was 40 and it was for educational assessment, and I was, you know, already 40. And so when, when he tested me, he tested me with, like, superior vocabulary and writing and reading and, like, borderline impaired in terms of math, like can't do basic math. And so now, like when I'm interviewing at a place like for a new job, I'm like, listen, you need to know this. If you give me a big budget, I'm going to need a money person or an accountant person because I don't really understand numbers. I can build you an incredible solution to a major problem of mental health and a community-wide like experience, but I don't understand how much money it's going to cost or bring in for revenue. And so I say that always in like when I'm when I'm interviewing or when I meet somebody and they try to give me like a, a mathematical whatever, um, and so I've taught my kids like thankfully their their dad is you know very good with numbers and so they I think are okay. I worried before they could talk. I worried like they're gonna have my math thing, um, but. I don't know how I got on that tangent other than uh, yeah, I don't know how I got on that tangent
0: well you're talking about how your mother said you weren't oh you were for your, your so sister that was and-
1: that was part of the problem with interacting with people is like I thought I wasn't smart enough to interact with them. And my family talked about how they were how the only one that didn't was my dad. the rest of my family talked about how smart they were at every family gathering. Like it was a family gathering pull up full of people talking about how smart they were about a certain subject. And I just used to sit quietly and watch and think, I don't understand why we talk about all of these topics in our family, like how great we are. We're not that great. We're probably – we probably are, you know – Less than not that great. We're probably not good at all. And like, I can remember at like family gatherings, everybody sitting around the table and my dad being somewhere, me being somewhere, sitting quietly with everybody talking at each other about the topic that they knew the most about. And I remember like, I just never felt that adequate. In terms of intelligence or an intellect, and then I found, and then I found my niche.
0: Do, do you? Um, then
1: so, I found my passion.
0: So it's it's, a, it's kind of like the imposter syndrome, right? It's like that's exactly oh, yeah. what it is. So you show up and it's like, hey, I'm no good, which that was me at. I wouldn't even say it's me at twenty because I didn't know anything at twenty, but I still fight that, and I've been doing this yeah. now, you know, for thirteen, yeah, thirteen years, fourteen years, something like that, and I still like the only thing I know how to do. And I've know a lot about it, but you still have these moments of doubt where I'm yeah. like, ah, or you see someone else. And I, I really try not to compare myself to people, but it's like we're human. So something comes up and I actually have to like mentally stop myself. Be like, no, nope, don't worry about that. Don't worry. Like it's not, they're not you. Stay in your lane. Do your thing. Like don't cross paths and, and, but I'm human. So something will pop up and like, then I'll see it. And I'm like, ah, like, and then I'll try to, you know, in my head of like, you're not working hard enough. You don't know this. You yeah. got to look into this. You got to be. You got to be better. And then, it, like, it, luckily, I've I've gotten good at training myself that that whole process that I just described happens in like quick, f- less than ten seconds, yeah. five seconds maybe. Right. And then I'm like, nope, shut like turn off social media or don't look at that or just go to the next like focus on the next thing, and it's but it's diverting myself from that. Um, now,
1: you just but, described. You just described like what. Everybody's always talking about in the resiliency literature, which is okay. that you're reframing. You're like noticing that there's a, 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 something that's going to bring you down or, or drag you down or it's not going to be helpful or it's not going to help your success or whatever it is. You notice it. You figure out how to adapt and accommodate and change it and mm-hmm. push forward, is push forward through it. And that is the, that is the mindset because... Because a lot of times, and I've had phases of my life where this is true. It's not as true now, but phases where like that will happen to me. And I'm a woman, so it mostly happens to me about like the way women, the way I look, the way whether I'm smart enough, whether I have enough, you know, courage and bravery in a man's world. Like I always work in environments where they're mostly men, and it will happen to me. And in other phases of my life, I'm like, oh, you know what? This is terrible. This is going to be terrible. I'm just not that good enough. I'm, you know, this and this and that. But there's other phases like right now where I do what you do, which is I think to myself, wait a minute. Whose story is that mm-hmm. actually? Is that my story? Do I? Does it actually matter what I look like? Does it actually matter if I'm smart enough as it compares to whoever it is? Does it actually matter? No, what matters in this particular moment is understanding I'm not perfect, I have flaws, and I need to rise above and surmount that obstacle which is natural and normative, human, to think, am I good enough, am I not good enough? How do I do better? Do I need to be better? Am I lovable? Like, all of those questions that are normal and natural, how do I face those and still accomplish and push through? And that's what you just described.
0: Well, I read a, I read a lot and listen a lot and, and watch yeah. a lot about, like, Stoic philosophy. And I like the idea. Um, so the guy I was recording before, do you know Ryan Holiday? No. Oh, do you like Stoic philosophy?
1: I know some about it.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Here, I'll show. I'll, I'm just going to bring it up on the, on the screen so that this is... Uh... I
1: have a friend, a social working friend, who um, talks a lot about Stoic philosophy.
0: So, Ryan, I've had all these books. I've read all his books. If you like reading or just like this um, idea, he's fascinating. Um yeah, 35, young guy, he's been doing this since an early, early age. Yeah. But he's introduced me to like Marcus Aurelius and, and uh, Seneca and a lot of these, you know, things. And in most of the stuff that he talks about with around Stoic philosophy, um, it's kind of that. It's like realizing that you have complete control over yourself, no matter how hard that is, no matter what you have to overcome. Like, I. Because it's, it's mental, it's framework. So when, you know, and I've gotten more fascinated with um, psychology and with the th- with the idea of thoughts in your brain and everything that um, your brain runs everything you do. It's more way beyond your physical status, way beyond anything else. So it's like if you can learn to think and learn to wire your brain. And I wouldn't say what, but, you know, like rewire your brain a little bit. And maybe in your field, that's not the correct terminology, but really the idea of um, learning how to think in a way that's going to improve but don't um like when you talk about expectations I've lowered the bar on the expectation for me because I know me I have way more flaws than I have good. I really try to be good. I really try to follow like the only the only thing I really follow in my life is the golden rule. Like it's just if I treat people no matter what. Like I went to church as a kid and everything else and I'm like anything you take um, that you could pull back from any of those things all basically come down to just treat people well, like treat people the way you want to be treated. And yep. I I really try to like live that with my kids, live that with my spouse, live that with my you know coworkers and just in with myself too, where if I'm going to beat myself up over something, I'm like, that's not very productive, Gail. And you can learn from it. You can identify it's a problem. Okay, maybe I didn't do it the way I wanted to do it. Let's pause. Let's reflect on it. Let's take a moment, whether I journal, whether I just think in my head. Whether I meditate on it, whatever the case is, can I think about that and can I learn from it and then just be better or turn that into a positive? I do that with almost yeah. everything I can do in life. Um, even if I'm on the podcast, I'm like – I'm going I'm like, oh my god, I'm rambling or maybe I did this or maybe I said something wrong. <laughs> or what. And I don't overthink stuff but if I find something – it's like watching game film like if you're playing sports. Like I, I assess what I do. If I go to a meeting or if I go to a sales pitch or if I go, if I'm working through a problem with somebody, in my head, I'm constantly evaluating almost like a fly on the wall. My conversation with you and I is I pretend like an out-of-body experience. I'm either a plane 30,000 feet up or I'm a fly on the wall watching. And all I'm doing is just, and I don't want to say critiquing, but I'm studying how I'm reacting. And I mean, it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just like, it's its very just, it's like, this is it. This is, take it at face value. Okay do you want to improve on that? Is there something that you want to identify? Is there something you want to dive deeper into? Um, So I get, I got a lot out of um, Ryan and one of the books he talks about is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which is a very, I mean, it was written not for people to read and was written, I think in 125 AD. So like old school still, like it's been translated a bunch to make it more um, relevant to now, but the idea behind it is the same. It's like, in that book, like he's talking about Marcus. It's very repetitive because here's a guy that's journaling and this was, this was a journal, like was found. It wasn't made to be published and he was just writing, but he keeps, he keeps repeating a lot of the same themes. And the purpose of it is he didn't just sit this and sit down and write this over a year. These were writings over decades that he was constantly challenging himself in a way of like, don't focus on this. Like find the beauty in small things. Also don't mm. overthink. You know, don't when you're with your kid, be present. And so one of the books that he is coming out, I get an email every morning, Monday through Friday, every day from Ryan. He him or someone types it up, but it's called The Daily Dad. And mm. you could basically call it Daily Parent. It's just a very good idea of um, but it taking the idea of stoic philosophy and implementing it in kind of the process of your kid. And the one um I think the one today um just want to make sure i have the right i th- I, I i save all of them actually i could probably find it but a lot of it is like you know talking about how to parent a child but kind of what i said before like don't like my viewpoint like my opinion doesn't really matter not for them like if they're like i really like you know this thing and and my son said something the other day and in my head it was like what he said, and it could be something simple. Maybe he said the wrong grammar. He's five. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Maybe he said the wrong, he did say something the other day, which was not the proper way to say it. And instead of just like nitpicking the way he said a word, mm-hmm. I was like, in my brain, because it's just you're human, you're like, that's wrong. But I was like, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, what's the general theme he's talking about? Oh, he's having fun about this make-believe for a mm-hmm. toy or whatever. So meet him where he's at and go down to that and have fun and talk about that. And don't worry, like my daughter, she's... She's just silly. I love her, but she's, she's our, my son is very intellectual and, and very, you know, very smart. And like, he has already said he wants to be an engineer, like knows what an engineer is. I'm like, good Lord. But I'm like, but my daughter is just our free spirit and she's just a little, you know, favorite things, rainbows and unicorns, like literally. And she's just our, our middle child and just, and she's great. Um, but she's also just silly and goofy and fun, but there's, you you know i take from different children and what they're doing and sometimes she'll say the most obvious thing she'll be like oh um crew's home i'm like hey, he's been home for two hours but yeah that's yes he's home It's great but like you know you have these like little moments of innocence with them but i also um you know and you don't you know you parent all of them different because you're like as everybody's different so like the way i talk to my son i might challenge him more because he's good at numbers and he's good at building stuff where my daughter is like she's drawing and making these pictures and doing stuff and she's just very like you know different d- d- um, not numbers but more creative and more kind of visual like you I think you mentioned you were and you know but then I have conversations around her and maybe push her more to kind of challenge her but I'm also not going to hold her to the same standard as my son is when he's rattling off multiplication and I'm like okay okay dude you got it, like you know Like, I get it, but you're like making me confused now because that's like high school math that I so but it's all these different things. But Ryan, um, there's a lot of stuff I get from him. I think you would find him fascinating because but a lot of it I try to reflect and I try to give people benefit of the doubt. And I also realize that if I'm gonna critique you, I have way more flaws. It's kinda like people that live in glass houses. Like, don't be throwing rocks at someone and I realize like if I'm going to be nitpicky at you, we've had a whole, you know, say we have. It's been over an hour we've been talking. I can look at everything that you've said, and if I'm nitpicky on a couple things, then my thing is like that I've missed the boat on the hour-long conversation because ninety-nine yeah. point nine percent is great stuff. I'm, I'm just picking on you in this case, but I'm saying like if I were to nitpick on something, it's 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 something that's totally irrelevant to the whole conversation of you as a person if I just generalized you on some little nitpicky thing because I just wanted to point it out at the end of the day my opinions don't matter your opinion on me doesn't matter I could look at it and think about it especially if it's around something that you're definitely an expert in and I'm like you know I can take it and 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 kind of marinate on the thought but at the end of the day it's how I apply it or how I want to translate it in but if I and that's why I think that most people when you look at like validation if I Mm -hmm. like like I want people to like me but if I like, I'm not going to leave this conversation and be like, man, did Aaron like me? Did you know? And you could say, yeah, he's great. Or you could say, I don't really care for him. And, like, and if that's going to make my day better or worse, then I'm looking at that external factor wrong where it's like, if I'm fine, I feel like if I'm doing stuff with the correct intent and I'm really trying to be a good person, I'm trying my best, I, I can live with that. Meaning I can live with my effort. I can live, if I'm actively being not a good person and i'm trying to tear you down or someone else down and i know i'm trying to do that that's the stuff that i i can't live with because that's like you know i find um you know i just i know i'm cheating myself of like the way i should be doing stuff or i'm not acting the best way because i can recognize that some people can't recognize that and then you got to like realize like everybody has a different level of self-awareness but i find that i'm pretty self-aware in certain categories where i hold myself to a high standard in certain categories and certain categories I don't like certain things I'm learning about and like even like you said becoming a parent I didn't read anything I didn't watch anything I didn't do any classes prior to having a kid like we had a kid and I was completely oblivious I was like ready to have I was like ready ready as you can ever be like mentally prepared of like we're having a kid but I didn't know what that meant and now five years later I'm now actively working and I've changed priorities in my life and I've punted certain aspirations and business and not like Punted it, but not not gotten rid of it, but punted it down the road because, like, I'm in a season of my life that's different, and it just requires different input and output in certain areas. And I have prioritized certain things, like you said, like I go to work, I work less hours now, but I'm my fascination now is not on having the highest sales total or trying to meet these metric goals that I was able to accomplish earlier on with like less child responsibility now it's like how efficient can I get that's where the challenge for me is because I want to spend more time with my kids and spend more time with my wife and to have you know be able to get uh, more out of my input in the work thing so I now have more input in my personal to get even greater output there and that's a challenge and if you would have asked me five years ago when I had like had a kid that five years from now I'd be fascinated along the lines of like the psychology of children and how it works and how it also affects me and how I have to change my game in order to be the be the parent I um you know be the parent that I my parents are great but there's also you kind of look at certain ways and I'm like oh I, w- I wish my parents could have parented that or maybe I experienced something and I've lived with that now I'm like you know what I don't my kids I'm not going to um, shelter them from experiencing it, but maybe I can try to help them out so they can cope with when you said like, whether it's bullying or whether it's, you know, coming home and failing, a, uh, failing your class, or maybe you best friend doesn't want to be friends with you anymore. You know, my kids are young now where it's like, so-and-so was mean to me today, which I'm like, so, but you have a conversation around that. Like, well, what would they say? Like, why do you think they said that? Like, you know, really kind of think it over. And, and you know, I remember one time they're like, She didn't want to play with me. She ran away. And I'm like, well, why would, why did she do that? And like, well, we were playing tag and she, I'm like, oh, so you're playing tag and she ran away from you because you were, you were it and you were trying to tag her. I said, that's, she was probably just playing the game, buddy. And she didn't know that you were, you just wanted to go talk to her. So.
1: I love what just happened. So that's, I like, I like when parents like share how they get like on the same level with their kids and use developmentally appropriate language and they use like a different voice. And they're like, I, I love that because I feel like one thing that I worry about in today's, today's society in terms of like children and adolescent development is that everybody's so distracted and preoccupied and, I don't know if I just started noticing it because of COVID and everybody started working from home and everybody's working on top of each other and all of the kids when they're two and three now know like they pretend to bring out their laptop and they pretend to get on their Zoom meetings or whatever the case may be. I feel worried about distraction and preoccupation conveying to children that their parents are not present mm-hmm. for those teeny tiny little subtle details. And I have worked and I try to talk to everybody about working really hard to convey and be present for, you know, their family members, their friends, their children, their colleagues. That means, you know, putting the cell phone down, putting the computer away, putting your worries and your concerns, you know, on the back burner so that you can really be there for someone else. Because at the end of the day, none of that success, and I too, like I've reduced my expectations of myself, I've reeled myself in and worked less and worked in a different way because at the end of the day, what really matters is connection and true belonging. I was trained by this guy who's incredible, his name is, is, is Dr. Tom Franz. And he was trained by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who did the five stages of grief. And in graduate school, like he used to just teach his classes, Dr. Franz's classes were just him standing in front of the room, pontificating and telling stories. Like that's how he taught is telling stories of death and dying and grief and loss and the things he had learned over sitting with people for, you know, years and years and years that were dying. And w- all these students you just used to watch him tell stories and learn from him. And he always used to say, like, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, before she died, would always say, the only thing that matters. She wrote The Five Stages of Grief and wrote all these books on death and dying. The only thing that matters is who you love and who loves you when you're dying. And that's the only piece of work that you do in life that really matters. And I don't know if it is that simple um, because I feel like there's still work to do on our communities. And But at the end of the day for me now, it's who do I love and who loves me. And part of that is about the relationship that I cultivate with myself. And I never really understood that as a young person. I never really understood like that is a wealth of joy and belonging and pleasure is the way that I feel about who I am and who I'm showing up in the world as. And that I need to trust and have faith in the fact that I think I'm doing the right thing, the best thing I can do. There was this um, psychologist... His last name is Winnicott, and he talks a lot about being the good enough mother, the good enough parent, and I try to do that. Like, and I try to try to think about it. It's like, how do we be good enough? Not perfect, not flawless. Like, it's shaped the way that I am as a leader because I used to think that my role as a leader was to lead and give direction and tell people how to do things, and now I know, like, my role as a leader is to show up and be honest and be authentic and talk about all of the things I don't know how to do. Mm-hmm. That is an inspirational leader. Like 15 times a day now, somebody will come and be like, what's the decision for this? What's the decision for that? I'm making decisions all day long. And a lot of times now I'll say, oh no, I got to go home, sleep on that one, figure it out. I got to Google that. I got to read the research. I don't know. I need to find an expert expert. We need to hire a consultant. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And the power behind I don't know is so much stronger and more courageous and brave than the power behind go do this, go do that. They hired me to be your leader. They hired me to be your chief. I'm the expert. I have to make the decisions. There's not a lot of power behind that. The power is behind like listening to the people getting their feedback and their understanding and their beliefs, reading the research, Googling, Wikipedia, doing all of these things, diving deeply into what is the next right best step. And that is an inspirational and joyful leader, one that doesn't feel all of the weight of the world on their shoulders and all of the accountability and responsibility. I do take accountability and responsibility for when my team falls down and makes a choice that is not effective. But when we succeed, that's on the team that succeeded, on the research, on the data, on on our consensus decision making. It's not on me. I didn't do any of that. I feel like, similarly to you, over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, and especially over the last three, I've thought a lot about my flaws, and my weaknesses, and my drawbacks, and My uniqueness and my individuality, and being able to be authentic about the choices that I've made that are unhealthy and maladaptive and not skillful, has made me make skillful and adaptive and healthy decisions more often. Like, I never understood that paradox, but it's true that when you get with yourself and figure out who you really are and get real with yourself and understand that you're so flawed that then you really get to be free and do all of the wonderful things that you have the capability of doing. And I think that is directly related to what you were talking about, about parenting with curiosity and observation and grace and mindfulness and presence and all of those things that are so you know, basic that we don't even really do them very often anymore. I mean, we're talking more about them, but we need to do them. And I too have a, um, a five-year-old who likes rainbows and unicorns. And he is uh, a dream. He's so dreamy because he likes rainbows and unicorns. He likes to be head-to-toe dressed in rainbows. Um, but he, his car choice is one of all beast mode. So, like, his cars are, you know... The Shelby GT, the Mustang, the Corvette, the the all the muscle cars. He is so into muscle cars, and his music choice is you know the Van Halen and the Pearl Jam and Sublime and all of any the five-year-old. Yeah, so I have to find I like all. This the, kid. I know. <laughs> so he rolls into school in all rainbow usually of the pink and purple flavors with sometimes with cat ears and we're rolling in and he's DJing and the, the, that's his genre. And he's pointing out all of the, you know, muscle cars as we go. And I'm always reminded of like, my hope is that I and his community mirror back and reflect for him that that uniqueness, that interestingness, which I think coming up I used to be like, am I weird or am I not weird? His uniqueness is something very special and it will give him much joy and grounding and centering to be able to be whoever it is that he wants. And so... I don't know. I just think the world is our oyster now that we have all of this social media and kids are learning all of these things through an online platform. But I'm also worried about, like, are their parents paying attention to them or are their parents also in this other virtual world, this other online platform where they don't put their phones down? Or So we have a rule at our house, no cell phones at the table. And no cell phones when somebody else is talking. And I I think it's important to convey to the children that nothing is more important than listening and being present to the person that you love so that they then go on and replicate that. And so that they replicate it for themselves, which is that we need to attend and attune to our own needs without distraction and preoccupation so we can hear ourselves, so we can listen to ourselves, so we can know what ourselves wants. And that's something that we practice, that mindfulness, um, that relational meditation is something that we practice in our our house and not something that I felt like I was raised in. Like I was raised in that environment that I just described for you, which is everybody talking over turkey, which was a tofurkey, but everybody talking over the dofurky about what they thought they wanted people to hear the most rather than connecting. And and, and so I, I don't know where all of that came from, except for that you said things that really mattered to me, which is that we see, you know, our children and our colleagues and our friends moving around the world and the earth. And We get the opportunity to observe them with curiosity and wisdom and to celebrate and support their own uniqueness and individuality. And that's, that is building diversity, equity, inclusion in all aspects of our culture and community It's like, there's different things for everybody. I would just say like, I think people are surprised about some of the unique parts of me. Um, from coming up on on a farm, like I know things that most chief of psychologies at hospitals don't know, and it mostly has to do with motors and birthing animals. Like that's real talk.
0: Can can I? There's stuff I want to add to what you said, but I want to dive into so so hobbies interests, and hidden talent so i i send kind of a questionnaire to people or i've started recently sending questionnaires just to give me some background you yeah. know just to
1: kind of you know this was very idea. hard for me to fill out really yeah you extremely did? hard okay well you did great and um, came back to it several times um So this is very
0: simple. Like you could, this could have been a two minute thing. It just gives me a little bit of an idea. But I'm just gonna read through (laughs) your hobbies, interests, and hidden talent because I didn't know where this was gonna go when you when you (laughs) gave me this. And then obviously stories to tell. It was a mixture of this stuff and a little bit more like deep stuff, Um, (laughs) including which I want to ask about after. But dying during the birth of one of them, which I'm assuming you like flatlined. Yep. Oh, okay. Died. We both did. Okay, we'll talk about that because I've never, but yeah. So like, that was the one that stood out the most out of everything you wrote. But this, the hobbies, interests, and hidden talents: rock collecting, <laughs> and I'm reading exactly like Aaron wrote here. So this is not me. Um, this is this is a complete uh, verbatim of what she wrote: rock collecting, pottery, interior direct- decorating in art, swimming, gardening, knowing a lot of car facts, always interested in wellness, resilience. Well being, all things with motors. Interested in music. Interested in fashion. <laughs> so I got this, and I was like, "Okay, I she, she, like." Does she have a rock pet? Does she have a motor <laughs> like a muscle car? Is she? Yeah. I mean, you 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 look very fashionable, but then I was like, "But then she's also like interior decorating." I'm like, "We talk about interior decorating with like real estate." So you have a lot of interests and talents, and um. Things going on.
1: So So. when I got here to your your (laughs) your place of business, I I got out of the car in the back back and I said to to Jen.
0: Yep.
1: I was like, "Oh, this is cute. This is quaint. This little parking lot." She was like, "Okay." I said. Yeah, I like the little sitting area. I like that it's tucked away. I like nobody can see my car. I, I like that big truck that had the skull emblem on it. Like, is that one of you guys's?
0: I think that's the guy that owns a tattoo shop.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I came in. <laughs> it's not in, my car, no. I came in and I was like, I like the color of this recording studio. It's, it's really, really soothing and, and <laughs> correct. And then we walked out front and I was like, ooh. Look at this look at the brightness this is very fresh and sassy and i don't know what is wrong with my brain but since i'm little like really little i can remember (laughs) what people were wearing in a given experience or gathering like it happened to me last week my mom and my sister were talking about something And I can remember everybody's outfits, the colors. I can remember the, we were talking about this family that we used to go and visit. Nobody could remember the name of the baby and the name of the family and what the house was like. And I said, it was off a really rural dirt road, had a, you know, a left walkway. She had plants all over the house. baby's name was Faith. Like, there was always cake under this glass cake thing and I was like I was like four I was like four and five and nobody remembers any of the details of this family and I I don't I that description that I wrote down of like I don't know whether you ask <laughs> fun facts or whatever you ask stories I am I I had a huge rock collection and it was a major bone of contention when our kids started bringing rocks home from the beach and building their own rock garden in our front yard and i was fully in support of it and their dad was like we can't do this i'm emptying their backpacks there it's full of rocks and leaves there's twigs everywhere like this we can't do this can't sustain it and i'm i'm thinking to myself sustain it like this is the earth coming home to us in their backpacks <laughs> And it is a beautiful thing. Like, I I, I don't know. The rocks, yeah, I, I, I still, to this day, I am the one that adds to their rock garden. We find rocks. We do that together. I like colors, and I love the way people decorate their houses to be themselves. I like knowing that. Zoom, COVID has been, like, fantastic because I can see into everybody's houses Mm -hmm. and see into their rooms. I went to work every day. I never got homework, but I talked to thousands of people that were in their houses and I got to see all of the things. I love fashion. I like the way people dress themselves and LA was really fun for that because, and then I came back to Vermont and I have since tried to tone myself down Because the Vermonters that I arrived back on the soil in 2014.
0: The fancy flannels?
1: Were wearing, you know, Birkenstocks and Crocs and flannels. Yep. Yep. I do
0: love Birkenstocks. Me too. I don't have Crocs, but I have Birkenstocks. Me
1: too. I rolled into town in all of the heels and all of the, you know, tightness and and all of that stuff that I had come from L.A. And I, I just, I love cultivating environments that look the way somebody wants them to look, the way that I want them to look. My house, I, I decorated all of it. It's decorated. That doesn't mean there's things everywhere. It means that I thought about every wall color, every bedspread, every piece of furniture. I picked it all. And I think about, you know, I let the kids wear what they want to wear, and they come up with the most amazing and interesting outfits. Um, I have one that likes to be fancy and wear bow ties and and downs, <laughs> and one that will only wear athletics, like we call them athletics, but it's really like sport attire, yeah, man. and i I just i I love gardening um, and i I think. For a long time I tried to be what everybody else wanted me to be, which is like, I don't know what everybody else wanted me to be, but I just, I don't like posting anything on social media. My sister and my mom are big posters. And I i don't like going out to big social occasions not very often at all. I like to stay home. I, the last five years, 10 years has been about like, what do I like? And so you've got a list of things that I've had to work at trying to uncover because that's what I really like. And speaking of like cars and motors, like I love drag racing and monster trucks and car races and stock cars and loud things and And music I listen to really, really loud in my car and think about what car I want to buy for, like, several months before I decide and pick all of the cars that my family members drive and know all of the car facts probably from, like, 1988, 89 on. um, It's just a thing that I... And so I'm teaching, I'm teaching the kids to do that. Like when we go on road trips, we do car identification out the window. <laughs> and listening to a little three-year-old, four-year-old be like, that's a Chevrolet Impella because of the back circle taillights. I'm like, oh, I love you. Yes, you are correct. That is right. And it's just, it's good to like, you know, connect over things and I've never really been that athletic of a person, and so we don't connect over, like, sports, although their dad is very, very athletic, and so they're very sporty and athletic. But I just, I like pictures and images and museums and art and music. And I was raised in a really tiny school that was in the middle of five towns, and they didn't have enough kids to do a lot of art and dance and music, and so your choices were athletics and sports and it never spoke to me like I tried to join all these different sports teams and when I joined cross country I tried to hurdle the hurdles and (laughs) flipped the hurdle by catching my foot because of course why would you know how to do that and so you know open gaping wound on the first track meet never did track again like softball, put the glove on the wrong hand, caught the ball during the first practice and dislocated my thumb. Oh, jeez. Like, it wasn't for me. The The art art region of the world is for me, except for mar- motors and cars, which speak to me. So,
0: um, yeah, because you said very visual. So, like, art and like just jumps out at you. Everything like you, like I you can said- see.
1: Yeah, I see it and remember it.
0: Are, are you creative?
1: I got I got my bachelor's degree in studio art in oh, wow. in clay and pottery and thought I was going to be a potter and took a year off and taught pottery but then realized that you don't really make a lot of money doing pottery and so the plan then became get a career and have a little pottery studio and a little garden house outside in the back of the house with some farm animals which, and a boat, which I'm still working on, all of those different pieces. But, you know, it, art and, and music and visual stuff, I'm just, that's the way I see the world. And it's it's funny because people are also the other way that I see the world. Like I can feel someone's vibe more easily than the average bear. And, like, I walk into a room, I often get called to talk to people that, um, usually kids and adolescents, that won't talk to anyone. And I can walk into the room, and I can feel their vibe and get them in conversation and um, get them talking and get them figuring out what is going on. And I just, I don't know. It's weird. It's it's very particular. I'm a pretty particular person. I'm not like... That was always the problem when I was younger. It's like I never fit in to the family of origin that I came from, to the school environment, to any of the activities that were available. I never really fit in. And so I spent a lot of time in um, our basement um, making jewelry, listening to music blaring, and watching the same four movies on repeat that we got at the local garage sales um, on the VHS. M- some of them were broken, so they didn't have like the last two minutes of the movie or the, la- the first few minutes of the movie. But um, that probably shaped my life too. It was it was Dirty Dancing, Pretty Woman, Pretty in Pink, and Brave Heart and E.T. <laughs> e. And so I was expecting just, yeah, Braveheart. I know. So what? I just well that one that one didn't have the last scene on it, so I never knew what happened in Braveheart until I watched it at some of my friend's house. But we didn't really have TV because um, it was really rural, and so I would sit down there in the basement and just bead, make jewelry. I opened a jewelry business like as a high schooler, and watched these same movies on repeat and listened to my what my mom and dad called woofers and tweeters, which were big speakers. And I just sort of built my own life, my own world in this family of extroverts that talked a lot and I just needed a lot of alone time. That's something that I know now and I spend a lot of time alone mm-hmm. to continue to cultivate like my oddness and my uniqueness.
0: I uh, I, I always like self-classify myself as an extroverted introvert. Yeah. Like, I can be extroverted i have to be in my business i talk to people and i I love doing this i love talking to people but i and my wife will attest to this like if i can go home on a friday and not see anybody but my family until monday i'm good like i totally fine staying at home not leaving the house being a hermit for a couple days um now i love going out if we're like hey we're gonna go out and do something like i i don't mind that but i I have no problem like sitting at home reading a book. I have no problem doing just like house projects by myself, listening to like a podcast. Um, And some days I'm like, and I know this about myself is there's day and I have to like proactively call people on the phone and do stuff and be like, you know, engaged with people. And there's some days I'll go into my office and you know, I just don't want to. And I'm like, (laughs) I don't want to call people today. Mm-hmm. And today was kind of, I talked to a few people on the phone, but there was a point where it's today. I'm like, you know what? I just don't really feel like calling people. So like, I'm going to email some people and I'm going to basically do all the outreach that doesn't involve physically talking to people. I just don't have it in me like right now. And, but it's weird that I'm like within an hour, I'm on a podcast with you and I'm totally fine. But it's like, you just, but I know myself in certain aspects and I, um, I like being alone. There's days I like just coming in, shutting my door in there, having coffee, maybe put some music on and I just work, but I'm not talking to people. I'm thinking, yeah. I like thinking, I like challenging, I like researching, I like learning new things. Um, but a lot of that is just sitting alone and um, and I have no problem with that. And I, you know, Saturday, I think it was Saturday, I read like, it was just one of those days, like my kids still nap, so my kids were napping and I was just kind of like, uh, my wife's actually in her graduate, uh, graduate school for sport and performance psychology. Ooh, cool. Um So she's graduating in December with that. So she was doing her coursework and my kids were napping and it was raining out. And I was like, I, there's a million things I probably could be doing. And I'm kind of like, I'm a, I, I, I'm a busybody. I don't like to sit still. But I sat down and I read like 100 pages of a book I was reading. And I just like, was like, nope, that's just what I'm going to do today. I'm just going to sit and read. And it was great. And I just... Almost the entire day, I wasn't on my phone much. I wasn't on, like, I didn't watch any TV. It was like, I just sat and read. And, like, if I had a few minutes here, I read. If I could sit down for a half hour, I read. Like, I just, I just, my day was very just chill. But I I know myself and I need those days because it, like, recharges the battery. 100%. Because, like you said, if you're in your... I get tired talking to people in my profession. I can't imagine your profession when you're talking with heavy topics. Like I'm talking to people about like their house, which is, trust me, like is a heavy topic relative to many heavy topics that you – or many topics you could talk about. But when you're talking about kids that are suicidal or p- doing prescription drugs or having family issues, like that's deep stuff. And like, deep. Mm-hmm. And, and you kind of have like an, – and then also – Couple that with the, you talked about decision, like there's a, there's decision, decision fatigue where you can only make so many decisions in a day. And I've done, I've done read a lot on this that, you know, um, most people, you know, make decisions by a certain point of the day and they're done because they, they, and there's been studies about, um, kind of like the, uh, I think there was a study that was done on, um, people getting parole. You had a better chance of getting parole earlier in the day than you did later in the day, because in the end of the day, people didn't want to hear it. They're just like, no, no, no. Beginning of the day, they listened to the whole case. So strategic as to when you went in, that really, like, I mean, massively increased your chances of getting parole. So, but it has. So you take like your heavy topics that you deal with on day to day, coupled with now you have decision fatigue, and that's one of the hardest things about leadership. Is that leadership is you're basically your skill set with leadership is your thoughts. It's your decisions. It's your thoughts. It's it's your what you it's your brain, your thinking, and that is massively tiring to do. And that's one of the things I've learned. Like real estate sales to me is easy. It's not hard. I've done it for so many years. At one point, it was hard. I had to learn it. Now it's like it's it's like uh, it's like riding a bike for me turning around and learning different subject matter. And and now like, as with anything with growth, you now are compounding on things, the base levels of what you've learned. So now you're going deeper or more niche in something, but now it's, t- it's tapping into your brain power of, or bandwidth of like trying to figure that out. That is so taxing to do. And then, and there's days where I'm like, I wish I could just sit down and call people all day long. But the problem was like, my calling people today was coupled after three hours of intense, like looking and learning and focusing on stuff. Where I'm like, it's not that I don't want to talk to people, my brain's just mush right now, and I just don't have the energy. And I'm like, and then I was like, I know I have a podcast that I want to be up for, I don't want to be like, ugh, like completely tired and come in here and just be like, <laughs> oh, I'm like such a dud. So I want to have some energy here, and then I'm, I also know I have an event tonight that I have to speak at. That I also don't want to be a dud at, so I'm like, I gotta, I gotta like have some dud in my day, and that was the calls where I'm just like, you know what, I'm just gonna email and chill and listen to uh, music, and but I, that's being self aware and knowing that my expectation of myself. Like when people say you want to be a hundred percent, I'm like, I want to be a hundred percent of my capacity for that day, and yeah. that hundred percent is relative to that day. Meaning my best day I've ever had, that will be a hundred percent. That's not every day. In those days, you want to maximize, and there's we all know those days where you're like, I'm firing on all cylinders, I'm making good decisions, I'm not thinking too hard, everything's just like everything's flowing, every like vibe, everything's just coming at me today, and I'm just feeling it. Well, those are the days you just you you basically run that horse till you can't anymore. And there's certain days where I'm like my 100% capacity day is really 60% of my max. Well, guess yeah. what? If it's 60, if I have only 60% today, I want to get 100% of 60% like I sorry for the math but like I want to get to that I want to get to that <laughs> I want to max out that percentage but my percentage I'm not going to um I'm not going to uh lie to myself and say I got to get to 100 because then I'm setting myself up for disappointment where I'm like if I just lower my expectation today and I can hit that then I feel good about myself that I brought what I could bring to the table today and I I'm great like you said providing great like I have grace with myself knowing That today, today, you know what, Gail, and today you're going to go 70%. If you can get your 70% today, chalk it up as a win. It's like going to the gym. If if your goal today going to the gym is, hey, I'm not going to lift my most weight I've ever lifted. But my win for the day is I actually don't feel like going to the gym. But I got up and I went to the gym and I checked the box and I went through the motions. And I, you know, elevated my heart rate a bit, stressed, maybe had a little bit of resistance. Hey, you know what? Didn't break any records, but I showed up. Like that could be a win that day.
1: I feel like you're describing growing up, which is, like, at some point, we all have to ask ourselves. There
0: you go. Yeah. Right? I I actually don't like that, but uh, someone gave it to me as a gift, and I like it. It's his function, so I use it. It's my favorite color, so.
1: I feel like we all have to ask ourselves at some point, like, who am I? How do I actually feel? Mm -hmm. What do I want to do? What do I want to be? And we have to do that repetitively over and over and over And that tells us the equation for that day and that week and that month and that year. And when we're not checking in, it's dangerous business for people that are perfectionistic or other focused or, you know, whatever the case may be where you're not paying attention to what you really want, you end up living day after day after day, month after month life, not feeling like you're being consistent or authentic with who you are. And that was a scenario that I have gotten myself into numerous times. And so now I really do. And with my teams, we sit around and we check in on ourselves and on each other. How are we doing? What do we What do we think we can accomplish today? How are we feeling? What's our energy level? What's reasonable expectations for today? And it becomes a muscle that you can rework in your brain where you can actually have self-reflective conversations and have the experience that you wanna have for the day. I, I'm i an entirely different human than I was when I first started out as a psychologist. I thought that I was supposed to, you know, deliver cognitive behavioral interventions or, you know, whatever modality of therapy. What I think we need to deliver is teaching introspection and self-awareness, reflection, and connection and belonging and how to get all of those things and be comfortable in being who we actually want to be. And I feel like that reduces depression, anxiety, suicidality, cutting. All of these things come into betterness when we are allowing ourselves to be who we want to be by reflecting and, and and being okay with not aligning with whatever it is that our family wanted us to be or our organization wants us to be or the culture wants us to be the 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 hard part about that is like certain people are given more permission to be who they want to be than other people that's a privilege Like, and we have to continue to work on equity and equality and everybody feeling like they can be whoever they want to be and that that's okay, that they can manage their own expectations, that they can perform the way they want to perform and go into the fields that they want to go into. And I heard this really interesting talk. I'm taking this class. Um, Now I don't really feel like I need to get A's or or B's, I just need to pass. Like when I was going to, when I was.
0: C's get degrees. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's exactly right. When I went to <laughs> undergraduate, I felt like I had to get all A's. And then I went to graduate school and I was like, I really need to get like low A's. And then I went to graduate school again. And I was like, no, B's are, B's are really good. And now I'm taking this class and I'm like, I need to complete the class and learn what I can learn from it and get what I can get out of it. And that is what a class is. Like, it's not whether I get an A or a B or a C or whatever it is. It's not that. It's what did I get from the experience of being in class? And that, I think, it translates to everything. It's not the product. It's the process. And so I'm, I'm going to class tonight, and I was reading these articles um, and watching these TED Talks that were assigned, and – there was this guy, I can't remember his name, talking about, like, we used to allow people, kids, teenagers, to go to trade school. Oh, you know what it was? It wasn't even for class. I was taking um, a an autism and Asperger's spectrum training on Thursday and Friday, and Temple Grandin, who has made, you know, so much headway for neurodivergent and unique brains, um, was saying, like, when she was coming up everybody was allowed to go to trade school if they wanted to go to trade school and now we're so focused on you know technology and regular college and what happens after regular college for graduate school and all these things that we miss the group of kids and adolescents that want to tinker mm-hmm. they want to bonk on things they want to bang on things they want to put things together and take them apart and I was thinking, like, that was an option for me in high school. I was allowed to go to HOMAC, mm-hmm. and I was allowed to go to woodworking and do things that weren't sitting in a chair studying words and numbers. And I just, you know, I don't know. I, I think offering people choices and options and opportunities to see what makes their brain hum is like, and and buzz is is the way that you build – Engagement in your life, engagement in your work, um, but yeah. So, so, I have to tell you about the the dying, the dying part. Yes. Yeah. So I didn't know this, but I do now. If you give a woman a spinal, an epidural mm-hmm. too high in her back, mm-hmm. the spinal, your body takes the shutting down chemical or mechanism or whatever it is up rather than down. And so...
0: Like to the heart?
1: So I had a resident student who gave me my spinal. And, and it was with, with our first. And I just was like supremely joyful that we were about to have this kid. Like, I. This is your first or second? Yeah, my first. Cool. I, I was obsessed with the idea of the moment of meeting him. And I think, you know, maybe everybody is, but I was thinking, and this is indicative of what was also, I think, going on in the marriage, is that I was obsessed with the kid coming. And so the resident student gave me the spinal. And the nurse practitioner gave me the cut on, the in, on, the, on my hip and said, could you feel that? And I was like, uh, yeah, I felt it. And she gave me that face like, mm, hmm, okay.
0: It was like a rhetorical question, like you're not supposed to feel it.
1: Right. She was like, you're obviously going to say no because it's the time when you're not supposed to feel it. And so I was like, no, I can feel that. Yeah, that, that, that was a cut. And so then... I could start to feel my heart slowing down. And there was a nurse standing to my right, and, you know, my arms were out to the side and whatnot. It was an emergency cesarean section. And so I said to the nurse, I was like, my my heart is stopping. And she said, oh. She was like, you're panicking. Everybody always feels like that. I was like, no, it's slowing down, it's stopping. And she was like, oh, don't worry about it totally dismissive so there was another few seconds and then i was like my lungs are not opening and closing anymore i'm not gonna be able to breathe in a little bit
0: so you can feel all this coming on
1: i i felt it traveling up and each muscle stopping oh. the nurse was like erin it's going to be fine. Everybody feels really nervous and uncomfortable when they're, you know, about to get su- surgery. And I was like, also, I'm starting to not be able to swallow and pretty soon I'm not going to be able to talk. And just as I said that, I couldn't say any more words because my esophagus and my throat wouldn't work anymore. And so all I could do was move my eyeballs and my forehead So I couldn't, my heart wasn't pumping, my lungs lungs weren't breathing, and then I couldn't swallow or talk. And so I was moving my eyes back and forth, and I really remember, like, I really remember laying there and moving my eyes back and forth and looking around the room and doing my coping mechanisms and staying calm, knowing that I was dying and knowing that she didn't believe me I knew she didn't believe me because I could see it in her eyes. I've, I've been in enough crisis situations to know when somebody believes somebody else. And so I knew she didn't. And then I heard the uh, my doctor, my OBGYN, say to the nurse, it went the wrong way. This is wrong. Something, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. And then I don't remember anything else. They intubated me. And when they brought him out, he had a zero apgar score. Oh. But I don't know that. And I don't I don't remember any of it because I was intubated. And so I woke up and my sister was standing next to me. No baby. No nobody. And my sister's an OBGYN. So she had been waiting to come into the surgery room, and they had never come and got her. And so she was there, and I said, where's the, where's the baby? And she was like, he's in the NICU. He's fine. And I was like, I want him. And she was like, you can't have him because he's in the NICU. You have to wait for them to do all the things. That they... And I said, I want you to go and get him and bring him to me so that I can see him. Please, go get him. She was like, okay. And so (laughs) I saw her, like, walk around the bed. My sister is a force to be reckoned with. She walked around the bed, and she said to the nurse, she was like, um, so we're going to have to go and get the baby, and we're going to have to bring him here. And the nurse was like, well, he's in the NICU. My sister was like, yep, I know. You're going to have to go get him. My sister's not going to stop until she sees him. You're going to have to go get him. And so... (laughs) like 10 minutes later and they come with him and and give him to me and I was like okay I'm good he seems okay you can bring him back to the NICU I just need I need to see him and so they brought him back and he was with his dad and and the rest is history but the spinal went the wrong way and then he was in there too long and got too much medicine because they had to do it again. And so we both died, or so I think, or so I was told. And the my OBGYN called at like four weeks and said, you and you gotta bring the baby in, I gotta see both of you. I've never seen a, something as traumatic as that. And I just wanna lay eyes on both of you and see if you guys are alive. The OBGYN, who had been practicing for years so we packed him up, we packed him up, and we brought him in. And she was waiting there, and she was like, okay, I just needed to see the two of you. You can go home now. <laughs> she needed to do the same thing that I needed to do because her last memory was of this thing happening. My last memory was of this thing happening. And so he's okay, and so am I. And I was not going to have another C-section. And so... When I went back to see her, I was like, listen, I wanna have another one, and you have to tell me how to have a vaginal birth. She was like, it's called a VBAC, and it's very rare, and it usually doesn't happen, and you have to wait exactly 18 months. She was like, start to finish, you can't have the baby before 18 months, or you're not gonna be eligible. I was like, okay, no problem.
2: After
0: having a C-section?
1: Yeah, I was like, no problem, I can time it. I I know those little strips. Those little ovulation strips, I'll, I'll figure it out. I can plan anything. So I planned it, and in exactly, exactly eight months, I got pregnant again, and he came out 18 months after um, the first one um, and in a very different manner, like ready to go. Um, but, like, I know this sounds weird, but I don't know what kind of connection that made me have with the first one, but it's different than most moms and kids. Like, we are, there's something between the two of us that is different than, than a regular, regular experience. But that's the story. And I won the moth storytelling com- competition with that story. And he's, I think he's fine. And I think I'm fine. It just, every time I tell it, somebody's like, why don't, why didn't you, why didn't you sue the hospital? And I was like, sue the hospital? That was literally not even in my brain. I was just, thinking, we got this baby, he's yeah. okay, we're home now, he's good. I was just worried he was going to be mathematically challenged because of me, not because of any of the other things. Turns out he's really good with numbers, so his first, grader, first grade teacher says, which is great, and I think we're fine. It just was a life-altering experience. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in true American medical form. They bill you? (laughs) They did. And also, they started coming in and offering me opiates every hour. And I said no for the first day and a half. And then they didn't stop. And so I asked to go home. And you're supposed to be in the hospital for like a while after an emergency C-section, but I went home a day and a half later because I was afraid That I was gonna say yes to the opiates. And it was painful, like a C section is painful, but I was afraid that I was gonna say yes because of how much I know about opiates, how much I know about myself, Mm -hmm. how much pain I was in. So I was like, I got it, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're going home. And off we went. And, you know, my sister had stayed. Um, she's she lives in California, she had stayed and she had made me walk around the hospital the morning after the cesarean oh. section. She was like, get up, you gotta walk. I was like, ah. She was like, nope, this is gonna heal you. Get up. We're walking. And so the morning after we were walking laps around oh. the hospital. But I just, I'm never gonna forget like that experience, but also that the nurses weren't trying to do something bad. Mm-hmm. They're told to offer pain medication every hour. But I, I know now why people get addicted. They go in for surgery or something bad medically happens or they're feeling terrible and you get really addicted.
0: This is like prednisone or anything like that or is that harder than that?
1: It's, they were, they were offering oxycodone mm-hmm. and dilatted. and that stuff is n- no joke.
0: Um, I've had...
1: Some I've people had, don't get well, addicted.
0: Yeah. I, I had a, when I had a, a surgery, I got um oxycodone and I took it all the way through, um, like I won't go in the detail, my, my I got a couple of buddies that love this story um, <laughs> of my. I had a, I, I had a surgery, um, and so I had a vasectomy. It wasn't like a. It's a, supposed to be a very. It's supposed to be simple, like simple, right? Worst surgery I've ever had in my life, and it was like I'm not going to go into all the. I mean, I can tell you after. Just I feel like this is like a long story, and I won't dive into all the details. And uh or throw the people under the bus that did it. But it was Um to the to the point I kinda did the same thing you did was I was mid blackout and I just remember saying, I'm going to blackout.
1: Oh my gosh. And
0: all of a sudden a nurse grabbed um oxygen and put it on my mouth and it was like someone just revived the life out of me.
1: Oh my gosh. And
0: and and we talked to most people like yeah, sex me—the easiest thing in the world—and I'm like, I, I didn't get what you got. It was a totally different experience. And of course, my wife's like, "You're doing it," and I'm not. And I'm like, I tr- I've seen you three kids. Like, absolutely, I'll do, I have no problem. And uh, it was it was bad. But I ended up getting a bunch of um, oxycodone. It like that's what they gave you. Yeah. And I'm not like, I've never had like um, a willingness to like take opioids or anything like that. But I remember taking them. And I literally went through the whole thing because I was, like, in pain for days. Yeah. And um, and I only did it purely because I was in pain. It wasn't like I was like, oh, these taste amazing. And I wasn't getting any type of high off of it. It was just purely pain. Pain. It was, like, managing the pain that I had for a handful of days after, which shouldn't, like, and they're like, well, you got more than enough. And it's kind of like they always give you more than enough. And usually most people go through them and don't finish the bottle. I absolutely finished the bottle. I was taking it, like. I mean, literally on clockwork, like I'm like, like, and it was like, whatever, I don't even know the time it was every two or four hours. It was like, I could feel it coming on and I'm like, I need more just to subdue this pain. And then, and naturally once I got through it, it was kind of like, I ended up taking it almost like precautionary maybe for the last like day. Like I probably didn't need it, but I was like, I only have like three pills left. So I just yeah. finished it off yeah. and it was fine after the fact. But I could see, because it did make a massive difference and you see like people with, you know, drugs and like how that would affect maybe a certain mood or mind or, or, you know, and a lot of drugs are like escapisms. It's like to alter your state of consciousness and to alter, and whether that be pain or just like, um, like mental, like anxiety or something, you're subduing something to make pain or whatever more manageable, which is a massive slippery slope. Like you said that you've seen the worst of it where people really just like, they kind of kind of run away in a negative way with those versus um but I find that a lot of it comes back to like the mental state and a lot of it comes back to like how you you treat it and I think everybody deals with some level of you know me- fighting mental whether it's you know mass like mental health but in some capacity like I ran into anxiety issues and my yeah. anxiety was purely based on me trying to maximize a certain level of, you know i had ex high expectations and aspirations yeah. and i was working hard and my like i can grind and i can work and i can you know make things happen but i also realized my own mortality of like hey you you can only do so much and yeah. what happened was was like i went in full bore and it wasn't like little incremental gains it was like making massive like Things added to my life in the sense of like three kids in three years, like getting married, business, like growing. Like I was doing a lot of stuff to have great growth in my life. But then you realize like you're human. You can't keep this up. This is unsustainable. And I ended up luckily instead of going into a very negative, catastrophic kind of like coping mechanism to try to like keep going through this and like keep burning the candle at both ends – I did the opposite. I was just like I pulled the reins back, punted some things, reevaluated, reshifted priorities in my life and got to a much more manageable level. And yes, have I everything comes with consequences. I feel I feel like my consequences are, you know, monetary and professional gains, but I was able to do that for like health and family and sanity. And that was way more important than all the other stuff. And I was willing to take that, back that up. But now, with that, now my goals and aspirations for work and business and everything else, the professional side is how can I do it where I put boundaries and pillars of my life more important? So how can I fit and work around those new boundaries where it's not just like a free-for-all? It's like, no, 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 I want to be home at this time. No, I want to be present for my kids. Nope, I want to sleep this much amount of time like no I don't want to talk to people at this time like and really trying to design what I want and I think when you kind of go full circle and kind of going back to your your uh, son with like the trucks and like the rainbow outfits and just like the you know all over it's really looking in it this is something I've gotten better at where what do I want my life to look like yes and not care what someone else wants not care what you know whether it's, you know, whatever. Just take everybody that's not Galen. What do I want my life to look like? Who do I want to be aligned with me people-wise, like time-wise, effort-wise? Even down, I know it sounds silly, but I've I uh, i was I've been in a deep dive of Adam Sandler stuff lately. I love Adam Sandler. He's my favorite actor as a kid. I mean, I loved all the dumb movies and all the fun. So I saw this um he got the Mark Twain Award this year, hmm. so which is the for comedy. It's like one of the biggest awards you can get. He got the Mark Twain Award for comedy, and I just happened to stumble on like the actual ceremony. So he's sitting up on the left, and I think it's at the Kennedy Center, and he's sitting over on the left, and he's got his wife and his kid, two daughters there, and you know, and he, Adam Sandler is just like the everyman, like just the simple going, like nothing's really changed in with all the fame, and he has like. All these guys and gals that come out like comedy, like, you know, legends, a- actors and actresses and all these people that come out and basically they talk about how they met Adam. And it's it's kind of like, a, you know, it's like it's, it's like a mixture for those guys of like a roast and a funeral. Like they're basically come in saying all these nice things and jabbing at him, But every single person said the same thing. He does things the way he wants to do it, the way he values it with the people he wants to do it. He takes care of his friends. And you always see that. He has the same people in his movies. He like has the same you know co-stars or even just small little roles. And every single person basically said, like, I wouldn't be here without Adam because he, like, his success, he brought me along in his success. And I was a friend on SNL or a friend from, you know, the comedy clubs in Boston or wherever. And... Now they're like fairly well-known names, or you'd recognize their face or their names. But what I got, I got out of that, I'm like, Adam Sandler makes movies. He wants to makes movies. He wants to do with people. He wants to do it with in locations. He wants to do it with, and he shows up in t-shirts and basketball shorts every day. Right. And in my head, I was like, and and he's like, I work really hard. But goes, I play basketball every day. I love basketball. And like I was like in my head, I'm like, why. I want to design my life like an Adam Sandler, right? Like, and like it doesn't mean like it doesn't have to be what he does. I'm not an actor, but there's things I like doing. But I'm also like I would like just to roll in with like a hoodie and shorts on to work every day and not care. And I've actually started to dress more down than I used to because it's comfortable for me. Like my shoes are like I like wearing like I got like Air Force One shoes, and I like wearing shoes, and I like wearing just like a straight T-shirt because it's comfortable for me. And but so there's some things I have changed, but I got it like, and I actually am planning on doing this in June. And the reason I'm doing stuff, but like, I, it's a perfect time. I'm like June is like a good midway because I'm setting some other goals and stuff. But one of the exercises I want to do is literally lay out and write down everything I want, like down to like. Work, clothes. Yeah. I mean, as as crazy as it sounds, but like in a perfect world, what would my life look like? And every day I woke up and this is what it was designed as. And that doesn't include talking to people all day long. That might include like, hey, I just want to do some stuff by myself. But lean into my strengths and what I want. And then, you know, and and just everything that I, like an a la carte version of my perfect life.
1: I'm obsessed with what you just said. Because...
0: I feel like you've kind of did that. Yeah, are, are doing because,
1: because our culture and society told us there's certain ways to stay well. Mm-hmm. There's certain ways to be happy. <laughs> there's certain ways to be successful. Here's your prescription. It's for, you know, middle-aged, white, male, Christian, whatever, straight people. Mm-hmm. But that was all lies because... It doesn't work for the majority of people. There's not certain ways. It's a way that works for a person. All we have to do is give them permission Mm -hmm. and privilege and ability to say, you know, what small things do I prefer? Do I prefer, you know, to wear comfy shoes so I can roll around fast and get where I need to go and not feel my feet hurt? Or do I prefer to wear stilettos and have natural consequences, which are probably hurt feet and bunions? I don't know. The point is the prescription that we were given for happiness where you make a lot of money, you have a lot of success, you do a lot of things that are material, you are really thin, like that was not real for the majority of us. But we have to sit around and talk with each other about like, who do you really want to be? How do you really feel? What kind of life do you want to design? And then we have to give the people that we love the most amount of permission and grace to be that thing. And that's, that's hard because like parents have expectations for their children. Organizations have expectations for their employees. Friends have expectations for their friends. Like it's possible that we might not like each other and we might not want to be around each other when the other person becomes who they want to be. The, I've been watching this um, TED Talk over and over and over on repeat, which is Johan Hari who talks about like the opposite of addiction is connection. And I think about like the opposite of the hamster wheel and the rat yeah. race is connecting to ourselves and connecting to the people That really we can be vulnerable with, really we can be authentic with, really we can be honest with, and they can be in return. That's connection. And I got this text message from one of my good girlfriends today. She texted about like her dog is really, really sick and he's dying and she just lost her other dog. And I knew when I got that text message that I was one of her people because it's hard It would be hard for her to reach out and text.
0: Yeah, she's vulnerable.
1: Vulnerable. And also she's extremely stoic as a person, extremely, you know, self-sufficient. And I have people like that too now in my life where I'm like, listen, I got to call you because I am not doing well and you need to talk me off the ledge. Mm -hmm. And like, also, I like to celebrate the people that are coming to the hospital wearing what they want to wear being who they want to be decorating their hospi- their hospital office the way they want to decorate it i had this um i had this I, signed, I i hung up this black lives matter sign in my office at the beginning of the the pandemic and this white female leader came in she sat down she was like have you she looked around my office and her eyes stopped on the black lives matter sign she was like dr stewart have you considered the way that the things you hang up in your office make other people feel? And I said, actually, I have. Yeah, I have considered that. She was like, I want you to think more about it because I'm not sure you've considered it enough. I was like, do you want to talk about the, the Black Lives Matter sign? And she was like, not really. I don't really want to talk about it. And I said, it seems like you might. She was like, nope. She's like, I want to talk about all your plants and all your pictures and all your fidget toys. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And then we're going to come back to the signs on the wall, the the rainbow triangle, the Black Lives Matter. Matter sign. And the thing is, I don't really know what some of those symbols mean to other people, but they're just reminders to me of, and I think they probably mean... Offensive and upsetting things to other people. But what they mean to me is like. I have two brown kids. And I know that they're treated in ways that are not the same way. As some of their white friends. And I have to keep working on it. That's what it means. I don't, I don't think it means anything else.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But. My point is that. We get so many moments in our day. To decorate our life. And that's our capacity and privilege and responsibility is to design the life that we want to live and then to deal with the consequences which are that some people are not going to want to be around us some people are not going to want to be close to us and we don't get to have you know conformity and alignment and blend in
0: i think so what i find hard is like one, you first have to get to the point where you want to do that. Yeah, Meaning, you, do. Like, you have to. You have to be like, okay, that's something I want to do. Yeah, and it's tough to when you say like acceptance. Like, there's an acceptance of it's not even at the end of the day you're accepting yourself because you could say like, I accept this is what I like to do. Yeah, but then there's also the acceptance of you have to also accept that you this is what you like to do and that you don't care about others' opinions. Correct. Because if you because because some people are like, well, I accept that society doesn't like. Well, yes, but at the end of the day, it's back to you. So. If you don't care what they think and you want to do – and there's people that are like this and and, and they're the free spirits. And, and really when you look at most people, I find that a lot of people that are um, – and some of them like you could say they're eccentric. But some people aren't eccentric. They're just very good at their craft. But you would say like they're very like extreme on one end. Well, there's there's like I've – I heard this plenty of times, like the magic happens at the extremes. Like if you're going to be in this cookie cutter little mm. box, and this is anything, like if you're going to be the top psychology, if you're going to be the, like a Sigmund Freud or whatever, who's right, he's a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, I want to make sure. Mm-hmm. But like I've heard of him and I've heard of other people, but they might be very crazy. Like you take like an Elon Musk, like no one's going to look at an Elon Musk and say Elon Musk is is. A, um, a normal, straight down the middle guy. He is far, like, and you're gonna critique him absolutely because he's so far one way, brilliant, and he's gonna be so far one way poor. He's a human. He can't balance. He can't be perfect in everything. And when you look at, you know, these these people, it's like, yes, and that, those are extremes in 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 certain capacities. But then you could say, like, whether someone's a musician or an artist, or like Howard Hughes, who was a massive. Person back in the day, and he was like com- crazy by the time he, you know, ended up passing. Like, but he was brilliant, and then he couldn't even, like, and then he couldn't have like social contact. So you have like, but at the end of the day, like, people, and this is, I brought this quote up. Have you ever read that quote by John Lennon? No. So I'll read it, but you, can, I mean, you're reading it too, but, um, quote by John Lennon When I was five years old, my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wrote down happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment, and I told them they didn't understand life. <laughs> and I think when you, you read that, it's kind of the idea, like, happy, you know, and I think that's when you come back to kids. Like, we do everything for our kids, but really at the end of the day, I think you want them to be happy. And, and like, happy is different. Their happy is different than my version of happy for them or that's whatever. Right. Like, I would say my version of happy for my kids is that they're happy. And if my son, like I was kind of joking, like ends up being an engineer and he loves it that's the perfect thing my daughter grows up and she's like i literally want to just roll around in sunshine and rainbows and butterflies and draw pictures all day i'm like as long as you can sustain your life like and that makes makes you happy great but i said figure out the rest of it but yes do it like i you know there's going to be a happiness to it if that's what you want to do and nowadays with internet like you could be a make make a rainbow unicorn pictures and figure out a way to sell them and monetize it and from a then you'd be great, you know, but you should always do it. And even if you're like, hey, I'm going to go and become this job, but on the side, I want to just do this cool arts and craft thing, then do it. Like, that makes you happy. And, I, you know, I think that people lose sight of, you know, and I think even when you go into work, if it's like, well, I make money doing this, so therefore I can't change my career or change something. I'm like, if you hate your job, you should – I think you should change your career. And I know that's an easy, just broad statement because some people are like, well, I financially can't. But like – but you can – I think do this like the side hustle thing and work it up and it may not be 30 hours a week It may be two hours a week maybe it's an hour that all you have time to do is research some stuff or make a couple calls but like I just feel like you can grind out of certain scenarios and it might not happen overnight it could take years or decades but I feel if you have like a goal that you want to try to hit and that's what you really want to do you have you know, you only have so much time in life, like you may as well do it versus saying, well, I'm not going to do it because so-and-so thinks I should do this. Or so-and-so says, I'm really good at this. So I guess I'm going to stick with this. It's like, you can be really good at something, but hate it, you know?
1: So today I was doing this conversation with this group of nursing leaders that I meet with every three months to check in on how they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I forgot what I said last time, three months ago, but this leader said to me today, she was like, Three months ago when you came here, Dr. Sir, you told us that part of our job is to figure out what fills our bucket at work. Yeah. And she started to cry and I was like, oh, and I don't remember saying that, but it does sound like it was something I would say. She was like, I just, I just realized, you know, it's taken me three months, but I don't know what fills my bucket. And I was like, well, okay. So that's a, a good place to start. Let's start there. And I was thinking, like, that we have to be able to be pausing and reflecting enough that we can determine whether we are actually designing what we want to design. Mm-hmm. And that so many of us are living in crisis right now, so fast-paced, so frenzied, that we don't have time to stop and or we don't feel like we have time to stop and think. And so... My mom lived that life. She was a first grade teacher for 30 years. And she was a first grade teacher. She was extremely good at it. She got a lot of awards. She was a Vermont State Teacher of the Year. But you know what she really likes to do? She likes to farm. And so she runs this farm now, my the farm that my dad and her bought um, before he got sick and, and passed away. And she runs it with her you know, now husband, and she always used to tell us when we were little, like, my job is the mother, what's most important is that you and your sister are happy, that's my job, if I accomplish that, I'm happy. Well, what really is true is that she likes naming cow babies and packaging beef and going to the farmer's market and selling grass-fed beef and... She just built this little house where people can come stay as an agro-tourism Airbnb. And that is what... She's 72. Mm -hmm. And she's now determined that what she really wanted this whole time, like John Lennon was saying, is she wanted to be a farmer. And that is amazing to Mm me. And now I love her more.
0: She's smiling all the time.
1: All the time. So... She doesn't smile when the tractor breaks, but she's smiling all the time because she has this herd of cows. They roam the land. She slaughters them and sells them to people that like grass-fed beef, and she holds court at the farmer's market.
0: The mayor. Yep.
1: (laughs) And so... I watch her now and think about, so like my dad found what he loved as a logger. He was doing that when I was young. And my mom was really good as a first grade teacher and it brought her a lot of joy and happiness, but she likes to be out with the cows. And I just think it's such a good lesson because it doesn't always happen right away. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of work and a lot of dedication and perseverance. But I try to talk to my kids about, and I'm lucky because I found the occupation that brings me a lot of joy and satisfaction and passion. I need to do it less than I do so that I can be home more. But I try to talk to them about like, whatever it is, I'm good with it. As long as it makes you happy and you feel like fulfilled and you feel strongly about who you are. We're good with it, whatever it is. I just can't wait to figure out what that is going to be. And the world is changing. So like jobs are so quick. Mm -hmm. So like jobs are changing, opportunities are changing. There's gonna be like, you know, most jobs are gonna be like a robot or whatever it is. But I can't wait to see, and I'm also enjoying the present moment of discovering like with you and with people and with myself, what does bring joy and pleasure and belonging, and it's not really the things that we've been told it is. It's the old school stuff. It's like the sitting around, storytelling, music, connection, community, faith, belonging, all of those things that are like, you know, deep. They really do it. You build the platform, and then you go and do all of the details and fill up, you know, whatever pieces of your life are uniquely you. And That is the resiliency mindset, facing the adversity that is life, which is hard and full of challenges, and you have to keep meeting with skillfully navigating the next step to meet that adversity and move through it. And I think, you know, I was really worried about this podcast. Honestly, I drove around Plattsburgh looking for your signs to see like, what is is this really going to be like? You know, and I Googled it and I listened to some of the episodes, and um, it wasn't that bad. (laughs) Because you hate
0: one to one people.
1: (laughs) I do. I don't like it. And it also is a conversation about really interesting stuff with another person who's trying to figure out life and how to live it as a parent and as a professional which I think is really, really interesting, like how to bridge all of those complexities and make the community a better place. Like that's also really interesting to me is that when Dr. Altoff, my mentor, brought me over here to Plattsburgh after I wrote the job description, I was riding in his car and we were driving up Margaret Street and he said, you know, in three years, you're going to have fallen in love with the North Country. And I was looking around and I was like, I don't think so. I was like, I'm already in love with Vermont. And before that, I was in love with LA. And before that, I was in love with Philly. And before that, I was in love with Buffalo. Like, I don't have any more love for any more cities. And he was like, no, it is going to happen to you. I know that. And sure enough, it's four years in May and... I was driving around Plattsburgh the other week and thinking, I love the north country of New York. (laughs) I love the people here. I I hope this area keeps doing better and better and better and growing and getting more and more and more and more and healthy. So that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to change the communities by talking about things that help people survive and not just survive, but thrive, grow into the potential of what the community and the, the people can be.
0: Yeah. Um, well, no, I think well, we're going to end there. Yeah. But I uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think that one of the, you know, I, I again, just kind of diving into a lot of the topics that you have, I think it's becoming it's becoming talked about more i don't think it ever yes. was not there it's yes. just i don't think it was embraced as much and i don't uh-huh. think the the i don't think the knowledge was there as much for people and i don't think the the ability to talk about it was there as much of people but i think anybody that everybody has different levels of you know whether you, mental health or whatever you want to call it but i think if you really line it up and you could different spectrums of it and different levels and degrees and stuff but every person deals with it because everybody's got a brain everybody's thinking correct you're in your head i talk to myself more than i talk to any person on earth because you're in a dialogue every day with yourself subconsciously um um consciously and i think the more that people just embrace it and don't try to fight it or don't try to think that this is like a you know if you talk about this you're a weak person or if you talk about this you're you know you're soft or something it's like you're in your own mind all the time. And I think the quicker that people just embrace it and say, you know what? I need help with stuff because Correct. You, th- I, I put this like when you start to do everything, like learning how to ride a bike, you don't just know how to ride a bike. You, you, someone teaches you typically parents or an older sibling or neighbor or whatever. And then as you get older, you go to school and you learn stuff and then you go to college or a trade school or, or just go out on the job and learn via train, like hands-on training, but you learn stuff and, Your brain, it's more powerful than anything. You need to learn it. You need to understand it. You need to, you know, I think seek out people that have experiences or knowledge or ways to cope or deal with it or or offer, you know, um, ways to just utilize it better. And I like learning. I'm a learner. I like learning a bunch of things that I'm not good at. Um, literally the other tab up here is about AI about how I can use AI like because it's, it's something I'm not going to fight it I'm going to embrace it and just say like how can I use it for my advantage and understand it better right and I've learned like you know like you said parenting like I've you know dove more into the psychology of kids and how they develop and the ways that they things they learn now at a young 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 age is going to stick with them their entire lives. Like you did with, you know, the study right. of Lyme disease or, you know, with <laughs> uh, whatever, or, you know, with, or uh, ticks, but like, but the things that stick with you that just end up having this thing that just like you, it's like a complex that you carry throughout your whole life that mm-hmm. it's a mental block and a mental hurdle, like, you know, and then it's just, but it's there. Like It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem like a reasonable thing, but yeah, it's there. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that we learn to tap into our brain and, and use it to, I mean, our brain has not stopped evolving as a civilization. Like it's going to continue to grow and evolve and we're going to be able to go deeper and understand more about the brain. But that's where I'm like fascinated with how it deals with like our emotions and how it deals with the way that we interact with other people. And I, I'm just very intrigued by it. And I never thought I like I would be, but you grow and you learn and you experience. And then it's like, oh, I'm really into this now where maybe, you know, when I was a teenager, I was really into sports or something now, but, or, you know, different things. But I don't know. I just think the more that this is talked about and brought out into the open, and I think people realize like, oh yeah, I can relate to those two that are talking because I have that same issue. And most, everybody listening is going to have some type of thing, mental, and they're like, no, I don't. But then I'm like, oh, peel back the layers of that. Like you kind of do. And it's fine. Like talk about it, you know, seek out people and, and learn stuff, read books, listen to podcasts, you know, whatever. But I think the more that you the more that you take in, the better you can learn and have better output. And I think the better version of yourself you're going to be. So I think if you can do that, I mean, selfishly, I like it that you're in the North country doing it because that, you know, that's where we are. But um, I still think that it's, uh, we're going, we're trending in the right direction. Agree. So it's a good thing. And I think that.
1: I think we are trending in the right direction. And I also think that what you just said is something that we need to continue to say over and over and over, which is that there's not a group of people that has mental health. Mm -hmm. All people are somewhere on their own continuum and phased journey of mental health betterment, mental health improvement, mental health satisfaction, whatever it is. It's not a group of people with a group of diagnoses that are ill. It's all of us working individually with ourselves and as a community to reduce the stigma Mm -hmm. of saying, Here's where I am on my mental health journey. That's been the most freeing part of being a leader in the mental health field is being able to say, I have a mental health journey. This is where I am right now. Mm -hmm. It wasn't great before. Maybe it won't be great again. It's okay right now. And that doesn't make me a mental health. um, That doesn't make me part of this group of mental health problems. It makes me human. And that is the best way to destigmatize mental health recovery and mental health improvement is by saying we all have a journey. Mm -hmm. This is where we all are. And that's completely fine and normal and natural. And if you feel like you're having a hard time, the best thing you can do is tell someone that you trust Mm -hmm. that you're having a hard time and that no one is ever alone. Like there's plenty of people that will listen and We have to reach out and check on our people, ask our people how we're doing, tell people how we're doing so that there's less silence associated with if somebody's having a hard time. That way we don't lose anybody anymore. We don't, you know, get in a situation where there's haves and have nots. We're all part of this experience of recovery and resiliency and mental health is the tool that we use to do those things. I'm glad you said that because I do think it's important. And the North Country is a little bit behind Mm -hmm. in terms of talking about some of the really hard topics. And it's a very loving, affectionate, intimate community where that destigmatization can happen if people start saying, like, actually, you're not the only one. Actually, I'm one of those ones. Actually, I have a mental health recovery journey and I'm on it. Um, so that's been the, the, the best part of being a mental health leader and in the area is like, I used to be scared to talk about that stuff, but I'm not scared anymore. And it's incredibly powerful to be the chief of psychology at the community Mm -hmm. hospital and out saying, you know, I struggle, I've struggled, I'm going to struggle. And this is how I surmounted it. And this is how I've recovered from it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. It's a journey, not a destination.
1: Yes. Yeah. Mm hmm. And well, that, and that's that,
0: Aaron. We're gonna wrap it up here. This was a lot of fun. You're you're awesome. This is a, I got a lot out of this. So I, I did too. Yeah, so, it wasn't
1: nearly as bad as I thought it was gonna be.
0: That's good. I try not to be scary, so that's that's <laughs> the third hour. So usually if you've done before three hours, it's fine. Um, well, that's we're gonna funny. wrap it up. Wrap it up there. Um, we'll put some stuff down in the show notes. Um, but again, um, Doctor Aaron Stewart, um, I really enjoyed this, and I had a lot of I heard some good things about you leading up to this, so like I said, I think you're you're making your mark on the community, and hopefully that you know I'm, I'm sure you'll continue to do so, and um, and I hope you get some more uh, pottery time in your life. So yeah, thank um, you for
1: inviting me. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So this is episode uh, 229 of the Galen Trombley Show. We're out. Thank you for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on all social platforms at Galen Trombley. Thanks for listening.